welcome to season three, episode five of How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams. Um, just wow that you guys are here today right now. Um, we're currently amidst, uh, amidst the worst air quality in New York City's history. So I do appreciate um, that folks are here today. And of course, that's due to Canada's wildfires. I don't have a solution for that um, other than, you know, let's try to be as climate conscious um, as we can moving forward. So again, thanks so much for coming out and thanks to everyone that's tuning in on the live stream and of course our audio podcast listeners. So huge thanks to the New York City Mayor's Office of Media and Entertainment for making this, this season happen. This live podcast taping is a part of New York Music Month the official celebration of New York City's vibrant and dynamic music ecosystem. I also want to thank Downtown for their support of this episode. Downtown's mission is to shift the power center of the music industry into the hands of those who create and those that support that creation by giving them the finest and most comprehensive, comprehensive set of tools and services. Downtown is committed to building a more equitable music business. They believe in partnership, advocacy, and helping musicians develop sustainable careers so they don't require their clients to give up any of their copyrights. And June also, June is when we're recording this, June also means it's Pride Month. I want to deeply thank our partners over at the Ally Coalition for supporting us and the crucial work they're doing. Founded in 2013 by Jack and Rachel, Rachel Antonoff, the Ally Coalition provides critical support for organizations dedicated to bettering the lives of LGBTQ youth and raises awareness about the systematic inequalities facing the LGBTQ population. The Ally Coalition is committed to bettering the lives of LGBTQ, LGBTQ youth through tours, social media campaigns, and collaborative partnerships. To learn more and how you can get involved, visit theallycoalition.org. Okay, so we are on step five of taking you through the modern music industry in full while ensuring you're not missing any revenue along the way. That means you've gotten your art together in episode one. You have your pre-recording marketing platforms in place to build your audience so that's ready to go when you release your music. We've covered business affairs. We've covered business affairs and everything you need to do legally for your music, in particular, ensuring everyone in the studio signs a work for hire agreement and you have a clear process to discuss and confirm songwriting splits. And we've taught you to record. That's what we did in the last episode. I mean, most of you know how to record or hopefully helped you to improve your recording skills. Okay, so that brings us to step five, episode five. So now it's time to share the info on one of my favorite topics, Music publishing isn't scary or confusing, plus how to land a sync placement. So here we go. Normally, I would share this info at uh, share the info on this topic before we bring out our guest, um, but I'm going to mix things up a little bit for this episode and bring out our esteemed guest first, who can be here as I teach this por portion, um, because uh, Matt and I got coffee a few weeks ago, and I just was blown away by, you know, some of, no pressure, Matt, but some of the things he had to say about, you know, the PROs and, and some of the things I'm going to talk about. So, um, yeah, so Matt's going to be here while I teach this stuff and, um, and feel free to uh, comment on anything that he might have thoughts on. Um, but I just want to give you uh, a little bit, of, little, bit, little bit of information on Matt. 
Um, so Matthew Wong is an award-winning film and TV composer, producer, and multi-instrumentalist. Matthew has written music for a vast range of different projects, from the Pharrell Williams executive-produced Netflix kids program Brainchild to Shaquille O'Neal's basketball animated short Head Noise, for which he was awarded a Hollywood Music and Media Award in the category Best Song for Short Film. His extensive television composing credits include NBC's The Young Rock and New Amsterdam, Showtime's Yellow Jackets, Hulu's Shrill, Netflix's Ginny and Georgia, as well as Glow, and HBO's Mrs. Fletcher, in addition to feature films. Matthew has also worked closely with documentarian Joseph John on his set of acclaimed films, Geronimo, which sheds light on the little, on the little known story of the Korean diaspora in Cuba, and Chosen, which followed five Korean Americans of different backgrounds and political views in their respective 2020 runs for congressional office. Matt has said that he's inspired by shows and films that challenge the audience to think differently about the world. Despite still being young, uh, Wong leans on his experiences when creating a score for film and TV, which he sees as the piece of the director and screenwriter's intention to, to tell a narrative that connects with the viewer. Matt says all the best producers and composers understand story. Pop producers help the artists figure out what they want to say and provide the right production context for the songwriting. In the same way, film composers have to understand how to use instruments that induce the right emotional response in the listener and thus create an environment where the story can shine. I'm so excited to introduce my friend, Matthew Wong. Come on up, Matt. Where were you that you have a credential on? Oh, this is a Tribeca Film Festival nice. this month. Yeah. What were you doing over there? I'm um, just going to see some films, and uh, I have one film playing at one of the events later this week, so Great. go to that later. Yeah. Um, any any films you want to share, and then also uh, what film do you have going on? Yeah, I mean, there was the U2 documentary that yeah. premiered yesterday that was really uh, amazing. Great. And then there are a couple others I'm really excited about. There's a show called DR from Detroit that mm-hmm. my friend did the music for, so I'm super excited to check that one out next week. Um, and... Yeah, the film that I scored that's playing this week, I'm actually blanking on the name of right now. Um, You're that busy. Later. Yeah, it's just been a weird day. <laughs> I totally, it has been a weird day. Yeah. And I meant to say at the beginning for our uh, in-studio audience, we do have free KN95 masks, um, so feel free to grab those. And they're also different colors, which is nice too. Um, okay, so first, what is music publishing? Um, there's two main rights in music. We don't have a mic in the audience right now, but what are the two main rights in music? Does anyone want to answer that? I know at least one of you knows the answer. I don't know if that person's here today, actually. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you are. I, I couldn't see you. Go ahead. Yeah, so I would, yes. I would also say recording and songwriting, right? So if you get a sync placement for, say, $1,000, 500 bucks is going to go to the recording, whoever owns the recording, and 500 is going to go to the songwriters, okay? So there's two rights in music. Um, A lot of people know that. A lot of people don't, right? Like I've met um, artists who are like 30 years old and learn that at when they're at whatever age because they're like, oh, well, I've been doing this since I was a kid. I'm not a separate, you know, um, recording artist versus songwriting. But that's really important to know. Okay, so what is music publishing? Like... You know, there's two rights, and most people here, you know, again, recording, songwriting, most people know what a record company's job is 
for the recording. The record company's job, in theory, is to work that recording, push that recording, get it as much work as possible, and collect all the money that's owed to that recording. That's all music publishing is on the songwriting side. Getting that song as much work as possible, as much use as possible, and then collecting all the money that's owed for that songwriting. Does that make sense? Great. So that's nothing scary, nothing to run to the hills over. Um, You know, music publishing has struck fear into the bones of countless artists over over the years. There's industry folks that are, you know, older than me that have been doing this longer that are, you know, oh, I've never understood that whole music publishing thing. Um, And that's all it is. So there's, there's two things I want you to take away from this episode. Being able to clearly understand and define music publishing. Um, maybe it's something you could think about like now or think about after the episode. Okay, can I, do I know what music publishing is? And could I explain what I just said to a friend? Um, hopefully we can, but that's really, really important. That's like one of my goals in life is for every songwriter to be able to clearly define and like actually understand what music publishing is. And then the second thing, which we'll get into, the other thing I want you to take away is how to collect all your money for it. Because music publishing is the number one missing revenue stream I see when talking to artists and songwriters of all ages um, and all different stages of their career. So, um, and and why do people fear it? Um, You know, there's horror stories from like plenty of decades, but... Um, say, like the 70s, right? Like an, a songwriter, an artist might um, sign their publishing away for, sign their publishing rights away for um, a nominal sum that might sound like a good amount of money, like $10,000, $20,000 in 1970 is a lot of money. Um, but then that catalog goes on to generate millions, right? So I think the fear comes from that. And I think the fear also comes from um, that there's a lot of sub revenue streams within publishing. I, Matt might disagree with me, but I don't care if you know what those are. I just want you to be able to define music publishing and then get all the money that's owed to it. There are entire books on music publishing. If you want to go read those books and learn or, you know, research or memorize every sub revenue stream within music publishing, have at it. But to me, that's like advanced placement. It's just really important. I'm just going to keep drilling it in your brains. It's really important to me that you understand what music publishing is and how to get all your money for it, right? And I think that's where people can get overwhelmed, where it's just like, oh, I have to memorize, like, you know, all all these things. And um, It is very confusing. (laughs) Yeah, but, like, but is what I'm saying making, like, what I, okay. It makes sense. It just, I mean, a friend brought up to me that the fact of music publishing existing outside of, like, there being the two sides of it. There's a writer share and a publishing yeah. share. It's really confusing, right? Yeah. But the other part of it is that publishing shares really only exist so someone can take ownership of something that someone else made, right? Otherwise, why wouldn't it just be writer's share? Sure. So it exists to exploit writers. Yeah. And that's exactly right. So, um, you know, the reason, well, I'll get into that in a second, actually. Um, that, that's a that's a good uh, preview of, of what we're about to talk to. So, uh, or talk about. Um. So in the pre-digital era, you used to have to sign with a publishing company to get all of your music publishing um, funds. And now there are self-serve options to properly collect on your behalf So while you still own your rights. And again, we're going to get into that. And I'll just say really quick, like that's a huge breakthrough for the modern music, uh, the modern music industry. 
Um, very similar to how, you know, now you can distribute through CD Baby, TuneCore, um, DistroKid, like that's cracked out, cracked open distribution, whereas in the pre-digital era, you would have to be signed to have access to di- distribution. And now those mechanisms exist on the publishing end, right? You don't have to like get discovered in a club or something. You can be in South Dakota or you can be in New York City or you can be wherever and you can sign up um, with a publishing administrator, um, which I'll explain. So where to begin with this stuff? Um, Okay, so I'm a brand new songwriter. I just wrote my first song. What's the first thing I need to do as far as registration goes? I'm I'm putting you on the spot, even though it's very basic. Like, okay, sign up with a PRO first. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, That exact. That's exactly right. So the first thing you need to do is sign up with a performing rights organization. So in the United States, that's going to be ASCAP or BMI. Um, there are some other performing rights organizations, but everything I share in this podcast is available to you. Um, there's also in, in the U.S., there's CSAC, there's GMR, um, but those are invite only. And um, switching PROs is like a huge pain that can take years. So that's why I like just focus on ASCAP and BMI. Um, I'm excited to hear what Matt thinks, but like generally on this, I say don't overthink. And by the way, in most countries, there's one. So in Canada, you're going to sign up with SOCAN. In the UK, you're going to sign up with um, PRS. In France, you're going to sign up with SACEM, right? So look up the PRO in your country. Um, and then in US, in the US, um, like I said, if, uh, you know, go with ASCAP or, or BMI. And like, I don't want to diss CSAC, and I don't even know who you're with, by the way. BMI. Okay. Right now. Yeah. Right now. Okay. Um, <laughs> You know, I know a band that was invited to be on CSAC and then was dropped by CSAC and then had to switch PROs, which is just like a huge pain for them. So that's why I'm just like, just go with ASCAP or BMI. And, you know, I have some examples in the book, mostly through Zoe, because I think I think someone here asked me this, too, like, oh, which one should I go with? Like, generally speaking, and again, Matt might have more insight into this. um, I would say don't overthink it. You know, these rates are supposed to be regulated by the government. So it's like going with ASCAP or BMI, like, shouldn't make or break your career. Um, You know, Zoe Keating seems to feel that, like, ASCAP are kind of the TV people. So if you're landing, you know, some TV syncs, you might want to go with them. I would also say, um, and again, this is like, this is all very minimal, in my opinion. It is more important to me that you just pick one and sign up. Because if you don't register your songs in two and a half years, you don't get that money ever. Yeah, and the rates are different for each of them. <clears throat> so one might pay a little more for film. The other might pay a little more for TV. And even within that, it could be like one might pay slightly higher for this one streamer. So if all your music is coming from HBO or something, then it might be worth looking into. But at the same time, that's like such a specific yeah. thing. Um, and if one of them truly did pay more than the other, everyone would just switch exactly. to the one that pays the most. So... You'll lose a little bit one year at this one category for BMI and then probably make it back somewhere else in the next year. So it's just good to pick one, as Emily said. And I think the best one to pick, because I do love the people at BMI that I know, um, but I would say that you should go with the one that will actually pick up your calls if you have any questions. So if you haven't signed up with one yet, you should just call both and see who actually picks up the phone, who's more helpful, and go with that because... If things do get messed up or, you know, you write a song in a studio and the intern who's in the back of the room just, I don't know, cleaning the floors says, hey, I want 50% of the writer's share, it's good to know someone at your PRO who can help you through those kinds of situations. 
Um, so I would just, yeah, make the calls, figure out the names of the people there too. So it's not just like a front desk, you know, person. Um, if you call and say you're interested in signing up with a PRO, they'll want to help you mm-hmm. or they should because your catalog's probably worth something. And that's exactly what I was going to say. I would say for me, besides like, okay, maybe ASCAP or the TV people or like you said, you're landing some HBO things, but that's going to ebb and flow in your career. You, you know, yeah. you write for all these different people. Um, I was going to say like, maybe if there's a reason to go with one or the other, it's if you know a human there. And keep in mind that human might not be there forever, right? Like people change jobs all the time, but maybe you met someone from ASCAP at the at a conference or something, or you met someone at BMI, you know, that's such a great point. Um that like if an issue comes up, it's nice to have a human. And again, this is totally not a reason to, this is not, you know, this is not the PRO's jobs, but um, they also, you know, sometimes have like stages at festivals or maybe they have showcases, they have conferences. But again, they work with thousands and thousands of songwriters. So it's not like, oh, I'm going to go with ASCAP because I'm going to be on the ASCAP Expo or I'm going to be on the BMI stage at Lollapalooza. But like I said, if, you know, like we both said, if you know a human there, maybe go with that. But all that said, for, for me, it's just like, just just pick one and go with it because I, I don't know if you've had this experience. I have met a lot of students, not just students, songwriters of a variety of ages that are not signed up for a PRO. And I feel like when I was coming up in the industry, like the PROs were very out there. They're like, sign up, sign up, register. And then I ask students and people, I'm like, well, why aren't, because like I said, if you don't, I believe it's two and a half years. If you don't, it's a short amount of time. If you don't register your songs within two and a half years, you don't get that money. And actually we should share um, what this money is. Um, so performing rights organization collects your public perform, your public performance royalties um, for your songwriting. So anytime your music is played like in a venue like this, in a cafe, in an airport, in a stadium, um, that is money that's owed to you for your songwriting. So go get it, you know, because I meet students and artists when I ask like, okay, why haven't you signed up? Um, they're like, oh, well, I don't want to sign my rights away. You know, they think they're signing a publishing deal. So it's like, I'm just lovingly yelling at you, like go sign up and register your songs. Any thoughts on that? Well, one other thing, I think BMI, if you sign up, there are like windows of like when you can actually leave. So it's not like you can just mm-hmm. like peace out at any moment. I think ASCAPs is one year, so that might be, like, if you are nervous about it, you could always just go ASCAP and leave after a year, you know? Um, Which, sorry to interrupt, is such a pain though, right? Untangling your catalog. I mean, I've had that take, I've had, like I said, the yeah. band who got dropped from CSAC, that took years to move their royalties over. Yeah, mine probably, I think I left my stuff with ASCAP actually, because it was easier to do everything that I did. I was ASCAP at first, then moved to BMI um, for and no other reason, except that I just had a friend there who okay. then left two months later after I joined. I joke they left because I joined. (laughs) Um, But I think, yeah, in like that kind of situation, I felt like it was just easier to leave everything I'd done up until that point with ASCAP and then all the new stuff with BMI. And the other advantage is I can still go to the ASCAP portal and see how their website looks. And honestly, and I've complained to BMI multiple times about this, but the ASCAP website is way better <laughs> in terms of just seeing all your royalties. And I think like something they do that BMI doesn't do is they show the cue sheet. So you can see mm-hmm. um, if I wrote like one 20 second piece of music for an episode of Love is Blind, when I see it show up in my like ASCAP portal, uh, you would actually see like the whole cue sheet with every single song with all the splits and all that. It can be very useful for tracking down royalties and making sure that you know, you're paid everything, or like the, everything that you wrote, wrote that did made on TV actually got registered correctly. 
Um, BMI doesn't currently do that. I'm sure they're probably going to add that in the next year or two. They've also said that for two years, so it hasn't happened yet. So, you know, those are small reasons, but um, yeah, it's like really minuscule things. And, and at the same time, I can also just call someone at BMI and ask about that kind of stuff. So I don't really care that much. Um, but those are valid reasons to be with one over the other. So if you want like a better looking UI, ASCAP probably is the move right now. Yeah. Yeah. Great. But otherwise, do you think there's any reason one should go with one or the other? I mean, that's what really helpful info. Like the, to yeah. me, I would go with ASCAP just based on what you just said. I want, an or, I want a clean, organized website. From what I'm told, I think GMR does pay slightly more than the others. Not surprised. But it is also a privately owned, uh, or not private, it's just a... Um, ASCAP is uh, enough, or it's a nonprofit, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And BMI was until last year. And yeah, GMR, I think they can kind of decide their own rate for any category, right? I'm they sure they can. Power. So GMR was founded by Irving Azoff. If you've ever heard of Irving Azoff, he's probably like the most famous modern, he is the most famous modern manager. So actually Zoe Keating talked about that when I interviewed her for the book and the podcast. She's like, well, I want to go with that one because you know that guy knows how to get the most money. Um, but that one is invite only too. So it's like most people are going to have access to, to right. ASCAP or BMI. Start with ASCAP or BMI. You can always switch later. Yeah. <laughs> um, even though switching is a pain and yeah. your friend left BMI, even again, though you're it, having good experiences with the BMI. And you can also leave your catalog with the one that you start with if you right. ever want to just like collect some money there. And you can also probably do the math. So if you have some, if I have one song that I wrote when I was with ASCAP that made it onto a Netflix show and I have another song that is on another Netflix show from when I joined BMI, I can just do the math and figure out how many plays it got and then figure out which has a higher rate for Netflix. And it's pretty useful to have that kind of information. Um, yeah, so it doesn't hurt to switch later in your career. Just join one right now. <laughs> um, you mentioned that BMI uh, has become a for-profit. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on that? Like, any thoughts from your songwriting peers? I'll... I don't know. I'm excited about it right now because I read their press statement <laughs> about how there were certain things that they couldn't do as a nonprofit. Um, I think one of them was like they couldn't hire third parties to come in and like redesign the website or something. It had to be like internal. Uh, I might be wrong about that, but there okay. was something. I'm about, not saying you're wrong. I'm just yeah. I run a nonprofit. I'm like I never I've never been told that. that, that yeah, that seems weird actually. Yeah, right? there's something about like they can bring on more help now sure. or something in other ways that they. Well, yeah, sorry to know, because they can take on investment. Yes, I guess that. Yeah. yeah. But at the same time, if they're going for profit, I don't think that profit's going to necessarily benefit the people mm. who are the writers or, uh, yeah, publishers even. Just like, I feel like that money that they make or any anything that comes from it that's positive financially would probably benefit the people working there more. Mm. Um, but we'll see. And hopefully, like... Everything they said when they announced that they're going for profit is actually helpful for the songwriters and producers. And and they're not going to, like, try to change their rates sure. so that they make more money immediately anyways, because ever, otherwise everyone would go to ASCAP. So that's yeah. the nice thing about having multiple options here is, like, yeah. um, if it ends up not working out well, you can always go to another one. Yeah, we don't have to get too in the weeds on this, but um, I bet they are take 
you know, so now they can accept investment, which they, they can get a fancier website. They can spend more on marketing. Yeah. They can spend more on recruitment and then eventually sell to GMR mm. or sell to something because that's what for-profits do. Right. They're going to have some sort of exit. This could be in 50 years or something. They also, they just moved to a fancy new building in Beverly and Hills in yeah. LA. And yeah, anytime I walk by there with a like songwriter or producer, I'm like, yeah, your royalties paid for that building. <laughs> and this is coming from a BMI writer. So, yeah. you, you know, you're, you're getting, getting the tea here. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Um, I saw you post the other day, which I assume was kidding, not kidding, oh, yeah. but I have to ask you about it, that you want to become the first songwriter to win an ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC award. Yeah, Can I just thought it would be funny because no one's done that before. <laughs> so you just have to like switch yeah, yeah PROs every year, right. I guess, until you, until you get it. So you've been with ASCAP, yeah. you're with BMI. Do you mind if I ask how old you are? Uh, 27, yeah. Okay, so maybe someday you'll switch to CSAC. Is what maybe, but probably, I don't know, we'll see. Maybe GMR. They don't have an awards, though, so <laughs> I can't win a GMR award. Yeah. That's another thing that's actually really interesting, though. They don't have, like, as far as I know, an actual office. Sure, um, right. And they don't do an awards show. Yeah. And I imagine, like, those awards shows are very expensive, so yeah. that's just, you know, paid for by everyone's royalties. Yeah. All very good points. Yeah. The BMI napkins at the awards. Like, yeah, that's <laughs> New Amsterdam royalties. <laughs> Amazing. So the other thing you want to do when you sign up for your PRO is make sure you're submitting your set list um, mm-hmm. so you can get paid um, for your songwriting on that. And also, um, hopefully what we just said wasn't confusing, but only sign up for one PRO. You are one songwriter. Um, so if you start a new band group moniker... Um, you, it, it's legally not going to let you, you can just be with one at a time. So it's not like, okay, I'm Emily White. I'm with ASCAP. Oh, wait, I'm starting a new group. I'm going to go be with BMI. It's going to bounce you out of that. So just pick one with the info we've given you, you know, but don't overthink it and go for it. Yeah. I tried to do that as a test just to make sure that it's not possible. Yeah. You can only be with one at any one moment. Yeah. So again, hopefully we're not, um, contradicting this, but don't overthink it. Just please pick one, sign up, start registering your songs because I want to make sure you get that money instead of it going into the BMI napkins and the Beverly Hills uh, rent because that's where your money is going to go. If they're collecting money and they don't know how to get it to you, um, that's where it's going to go. So And and redistributed to other songwriters. So, yeah, but that's an important point because I feel yeah. like a lot of people don't think about the fact that BMI is collecting that money anyways and that yes. their job throughout the rest of the year is to funnel it to the people who actually wrote those tunes. And a lot of that gets lost in the end. So it's just a disservice to yourself to not collect yeah. money that another company is getting on your behalf, technically, anyways. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's totally messed up because, you know, I, I met an artist. I mean, he's not even that old, but um, who's 30 and had been releasing music since he was 15. And he didn't learn about PROs until mm-hmm. his late 20s, right? So what if you're 50? What if you're... Se- so, um, yeah, again, they don't know who you are unless you, t- and I, I just think the two and a half year windows is way too short. Yeah. They're never going to change it, but. Yeah, I guess they probably won't. <laughs> no, it's not in there. You know, it doesn't benefit them too. So anyway, I think you get it. Please sign up for your PRO, register your songs. Um, okay. So 
if, okay, this is the other thing I want you to take away from this episode. Um, so we know what music publishing is, hopefully. If you are just signed up for your PRO and you are not collecting on your music publishing in any other way, you are missing money. If your songwriting is being covered, streamed, sold, any of the above, which is most people. So I will repeat, if you are just signed up for your PRO and you are not collecting on your music publishing in any other way, you are missing money. We're going to share how, how to get that money. Um, but again, this is, um, you know, I talk to songwriters all ages, all stages of their careers, landing sinks, you know, and I say, um, oh, how are you collecting on your publishing? And they're like, oh, I'm with ASCAP. Oh, I'm with BMI. And they're not collecting any other way. And um, which means they're missing money. And the reason, the reason so many songwriters are missing this is, is what you started to talk about before. Um, so when you sign up for ASCAP or BMI, they are going to take a song that you wrote 100% and split it into two shares, the writer's share and the publisher's share. And they are going to nudge you to create a publishing designee. So if I sign up, they're going to be like, okay, you're Emily White, the songwriter. Why don't you make a publishing designee, Emily White Music? So it's totally understandable when I'm talking to songwriters and artists, when I say, how are you collecting on your publishing? And they say, oh, I'm with BMI. Oh, I'm with ASCAP. Because they've already created the publishing designee. Right. So that's why it's confusing to people. Um, so here's how... Yeah. I think a lot of people also don't do it because I forget if it's ASCAP or I think it is BMI. Mm -hmm. One of them charges $50 or $100 to set up like a publishing company. Totally worth doing it. Also, um, I think they'd be okay with me saying this, but like if you call them and ask about setting up a publishing company, sometimes they might even want to just give you a discount code or, yeah. you know, or actually help people out. So like, yeah. you know, that that's one of the other good reasons about calling and just trying to get like some... FaceTime with someone at one of the PROs. And if it's already free with ASCAP, I might have it flipped, by the way. I'm not I sure think it's ones. ASCAP that charges. ASCAP because charges. Because I was just talking to a college professor that pushes BMI because it's free. Ah, okay. Well, and that could also be an incentive to join BMI instead of yeah. ASCAP. So, but, and not to jump around. It's like, okay, yeah. well, you're paying to be, you know, to start your publishing entity um, and you get the nicer website, right? So maybe that's what some of yeah. the money is, is going towards. Right. Um, so... Um, so that's why songwriters are confused by this, right? Because they've set up a publishing designee. So it's like, oh, well, ASCAP's collecting on my pub publishing. I'm good to go. Okay. Um, in the pre-digital era, like I said, you would have to sign with a publisher to get the rest of that money. Now you can sign up with SongTrust, um, which I have been evangelizing. They, you know, I, I do work with them now, but I have been evangelizing genuinely um, for years. And as you guys know, like I only share companies and platforms that um, I completely believe in and, and know that supports you guys. So at SongTrust, you can sign up um, and it's going to be 85% in your favor for your music publishing, 15% to them. Um, it is a $100 fee to get going, but if you Google around, you can definitely find discount codes and you own your rights. Um, I believe it's a one-year term and then double check. I think you can get out of it, you know, within 30 days after the one year or, or it might be, you know, re-upping for another, you know, one year term. But to be totally honest, like that time flies, like that goes by really fast. Um, so 
Song Trust was founded um, by Justin Kalifowitz and Joe Conyers at Downtown Music Publishing. Downtown publishes um, Image and Heap, um, you know, works with John Lennon's catalog and Yoko Ono, works with J. Cole. So you have access to the same publishing collection mechanisms as those artists and anyone can sign up. And again, like I have you know, lovingly yelled at so many artists when I find out they're only with a PRO and then they go sign up for Song Trust and there's like tens of thousands of dollars just sitting there. And again, if you don't um, collect on your music publishing in full through Song Trust or through a publishing administrator within two and a half years, you don't get that money. That also goes into what's called the black box. So sign up for your PRO, register your songs with your PRO, and then register your songs with Song Trust or a publishing administrator. Um, and I'm going to share a, a few other options, but I start with Song Trust because that is open to you guys. That is open um, to everyone. Any comments on that? No pressure. Yeah, that sounds great. Okay, <laughs> cool. Um, so when you distribute your music through CD Baby or TuneCore, there's a very attractive box that I'm sure many of you have seen that basically says, want to make more money? Check this box. And so who's not, I mean, it probably has a little more info than that, but that's basically like what the UX says. Um, I think it's like CD Baby Pro. Yeah. One of like the higher tier things. Um, and then dish, actually, I don't know if DistroKid I don't think DistroKid does. does. Yeah. yeah, but TuneCore yeah. Tune does. So when you're distributing, distributing your music, you see this attract, and you're doing a million things, right? Like you're uploading, you know, your artwork, you're doing all this stuff. Well, yeah, I want to make more money. So I click on it. You are opting in for those companies to administer your publishing. And yes, I'm aware that CD Baby uses Song Trust for um, their publishing administration. But if you are distributing through CD Baby with this release, and then maybe you're on an indie label or something, or maybe you switch to DistroKid, then your publishing is going to be all over the place. And it's just easier for you to keep it organized, like in your Song Trust account where you can see everything. And also CD Baby is going to take a tiny little percentage on top of the Song Trust fee. So just go directly to the source, to Song Trust. So don't, don't check that box. And um, I've definitely worked with artists where um, I've asked them, I'm like, have you checked that really attractive box to make more money? And the answer is no. And then I go out and do a publishing deal for them. And it turns out, yes, they did check that box. And then we have to untangle all that. So I, I do want to, I did want to clarify that. And then um, I'm just going to share, you know, you can also sign a publishing deal. And there's two, there's generally two different kinds of publishing deals. There's an admin or administration deal. And that's very similar to the song trust terms I just uh, described. Um, that's something that's really brilliant about song trust. It's, it's, self, it's like a self-serve admin deal. Um, admin deals are negotiable. Um, they're going to be anywhere from like 80-20 in your favor, 85-15. I wouldn't go too far below like, you know, 75% in your favor, 25%. Um, again, it's all negotiable. Um, you own your rights in an admin deal. It could be a one-year term, could be a three-year term, maybe a five-year term. Um, and again, it depends on your track record. Um, if you know who Max Martin is, who wrote, you know, Britney Spears hits, and I'm sure you could rattle off more than that, but a lot of pop songs. I heard once that he has a 1% admin deal because it's like 1% of um, the publishing on those songs is, is massive, Right. Um, so maybe you get offered, um, you know, an 85-15 deal and you need a little bit of an advance. Um, admin advances tend to be a little bit smaller. Um, you know, it could be $5,000, could be $20,000, it could be $1,000. 
Um, so you get, say you get offered 8515 but you want an advance. They're like, okay, we're going to give you a $5,000 advance, but we need to recoup that faster. So the terms are going to be 80-20. So all this stuff, you know, they're all sliding scales. Um, we're going to talk more about this um, in the final episode, episode 12, but do not do any sort of um, admin or co-publishing deal uh, without an attorney. You don't need an attorney um, I'm sure my attorney would like yell at me for saying this, but you don't need an attorney for song trust, right? That's like distributing through DistroKid and um, very uh, standard terms that are open to everyone. Um, but with an admin deal, that's all going to be uh, negotiable. Um, and again, you you own those rights. The other option is a co-publishing deal. And in that case, um, the co-publisher is generally going to take a portion for copy a portion of your copyright. Um, for, you know, a decent amount of time, if not in perpetuity. What does perpetuity mean? <laughs> Forever. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm actually not anti-co-pub deals, but only do one if you are getting a fat advance, okay? Like a significant advance. Um, you know, one time my friend Dan came to me, who's, who's a producer, and he was offered like a $2,000 advanced co-publishing deal. And he said, hey, can I hire you to consult on this? And I said, sure. And he wanted to negotiate it himself. He just wanted me to like tell him what to do. And I said, okay. And he didn't need the $2,000. Um, and it was 20 years of his copyrights for $2,000. I mean, what's, you know, 2000 divided by 20, like 200 bucks a year or something. So it's like, even if he needed the money, it's like, go work at a coffee shop or something. Like, um, you really have to do the math on that stuff. So I said, yeah. Yeah, well, it's good to do the math because I think a lot of yeah. artists forget to. And it might sound it's very like, oh, 2000 bucks, great. Well, even if it's, let's say, $100,000 and it's a five-year deal, just divide that by five. And then it makes sense why a lot of, you know, (laughs) I feel like Uber drivers in LA, you might talk to them and be like, oh yeah, it's some Foster the People record I produced and uh, I'm still driving Uber. It's just like, because yeah, if you do that math, it's like, that's not enough to live on in LA or New York or really a lot of places in the States, I guess now. Um, But that could be like a good amount of money that if you're smart about it and you get it mostly upfront, you could try to put it in the stock market, hope it does better that way than relying on your PRO money. There's a lot of things to think about there, but yeah. just do that math first and then think about it as like, you'll have this much money per year. Is that enough to live on to get to the next bigger song that hopefully I can pay off this whole advance? Yeah, yeah. And that's exactly right too. I mean, there are, not to jump around, there there are companies like Beat Bread that are offering advances. That's going to be on your streaming royalties. But even those guys say like, please don't take it unless you have a plan. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're using this like to tour, you know, for promo on your career or to buy a home or something, that's all totally okay. I mean, I mean not that it's not okay to just take it, but. I know a lot of people who like spend that advance like exactly. really immediately. That's what we're saying. Sometimes it's like dumb things, like some cool sneakers or, um, or even other things that might seem smart, like a new MacBook Pro because their current one, they can't make enough music on, it's crashing or something. Or a music video for their new song and they can really get the value, production value way higher now with some more money behind it. And then hopefully it does do well and does better than anything they've done previously. But in a lot of cases, it might not. And then if that happens, you waste all your money on one music video, you have to recoup a big amount of money now and it's like yeah. kind of terrifying. Yeah. Not yeah. to get too off track. Definitely um, throw, 
part of any money that you make into a retirement account. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people like think of the publishing deals being like the end all, like the, the final achievement that you want yeah. in your career. And that should be like a starting thing of anything. But I mean, what people are glorifying, I guess, among songwriters and producers is the ability to give away percentage of what they're making to another company. Right. So yeah, just so true. be real about that. That's what's happening. And yeah. They're giving you money because they think in the long term they can make more money and you're an investment. And that could benefit you, but just, I think, remember exactly. The publishing deal is there for someone else to make money off of your stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And there are ways to work them, which we'll talk about in a second. But um, just to wrap up my example with my friend Dan, so he gets offered $2,000 for a co-publishing deal. I said, go back to them, see if they do admin deals, because a $2,000 advance for an admin deal is totally fine. Um, especially for someone in in his situation. And if they don't um, let them, if they only do co-pub deals, let them know that you need a higher advance. Then they come back with a $10,000 advance, which I still thought was totally too low for 10 years. But for Dan, that was good enough. And that was five times higher than what he was initially offered. So that's why it's really important for you to understand the difference between admin deals, right, that are going to be smaller advances versus like 20 or 30 or forever, 20 or 30 years or forever of um, your copyrights because that's when you want the fat advance. And like I said, I've worked with artists um, where they get a large enough, you know, six-figure publishing advance and they are, you know, um, buying a home in in Green Hills, which is like the nice part of of Nashville or a young artist that is getting getting going on the road and with promo and and things like that. So I'm not against these things. For me personally, you know, if you do a co-publishing deal and you give up your copyright on one side, I've always recommended that the artists I work with um, own their recordings so they at least own one side. I mean, that's just like my opinion. Um, I I think something that's getting advertised a little more now is that another thing you could consider is at some point, if you do have a good relationship with your PRO, whether it's ASCAP or BMI, um, and I think generally this is like a, yeah, kind of deal that someone there might offer you, but like um, if you go to like your ASCAP rep, you Mm They and you say you need some money up front, they might be able to give you a deal of like, okay, so let's see how much you've made in royalties from us for the last two to three years. Um, I, I think the amount of years would depend on who you are. But they'll say, okay, so you made about $15,000, $20,000 a year the last three years. So we'll give you that up front as one payment and your future royalties will have to recoup that and then you can start making more money from us again. But we can see from all these years of royalty statements that you're you're good for it. So you're not going to make any more money until you recoup that number. But it's a pretty useful thing to know about. And some people do pretty well by that and like use that kind of advance, um, which it's really like, yeah, no interest advance. And it's so hard to get those in life. So <laughs> if your PRO can do that for you, that's a pretty big thing yeah. to, to know about. And that number will be higher if you don't sign away any of your stuff to another company, like a third-party distributor, or sorry, a publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's just good to know those kinds of things exist, I think. Um, and you don't have to put all your faith into some publisher giving you that kind of money. There is a certain cloud thing, though, I think, too, saying, like, oh, I'm yeah. a producer, like, I'm published by Warner. Or, yeah. Yeah. I don't know, like, does that really matter to people? <laughs> well, I, I, unfortunately, I, I totally agree with you. And I, um, you know, I hear that from people, oh, I'm on a pub deal or oh, I'm with this or I'm with that. Yeah. Um, and so that's a great segue. So if you do a publishing deal, uh, that's when the work actually begins, yeah. um, which might be confusing, right? Because these people 
maybe taking you out to dinner. They're excited about you. It's not that they're not excited about you, but now that um, you are with that company, um, you are amongst thousands, if not tens of thousands, other tens of thousands of other songs. So now you need to stand out. Like, honestly, even if you're the next Paul McCartney or something, um, you need to respectfully stay in their, in, in your publishing team's face. Um, and so what I mean by that is, you know, send an email to them once, twice a month, you know, not, not more than that with your latest and greatest highlights. Like, hey, here's some press I've been getting. Here's shows and webcasts I have coming up. Remind them they are always welcome to the guest list. Um, music supervisors are always welcome to the guest list because then it's like, oh, yeah, like, cool. I'm thinking of Matt more. I'm thinking of Yancey more um, instead of just like, you know, being overwhelmed by all all the music they have to sort through. And also, um, you know, I have, my first book is actually called Interning 101, and I'm probably going to repurpose it for adults and call it modern office office basics, keeping it all in yourself together. Um, be mindful about when you are sending these emails, right? Like don't send them late on Saturday nights. Don't send them on major holidays. Send them on like Monday, midday, Tuesday, midday. And if you're not available then, this is the interning 101 uh, cheat code. Um, there's programs like Boomerang for Gmail, where you can schedule your emails so they can send at a more opportune time. So if Saturday night is when you're off from work and you're working on this stuff, um, you, can use plat- you can use programs like Boomerang and get those, you know, keep the email as short as possible, but maybe even bullet pointed. Like I said, here's my latest press. Here's my tour dates. So you guys always have access to guest lists. So do the music supervisors. And that's going to help you stand out um, to your t- and again, you don't want to email them every day. You don't want to email them on holidays, on, on weekends and stuff. The goal of your email is for it to get read. So work your publishing deal. No attachments. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's a great segue too. Um, also be really organized in how you deliver assets to them, even if it's like new songs, right? Like maybe you could send them a private, like if you want to share demos or something before it's out, like maybe a private um, you know, SoundCloud streaming link, like also, you know, people and industry people travel a lot. So a lot of times we're on planes with slow Wi-Fi. we're in hotels, right? And so you don't want the inbox to be clogged. Again, the point is to get those assets across and get your email read. What, what do you, I mean, they should have an asset delivery system, but especially like if you're sending something new or, you know, you just met a publisher and you want to send them music, I do what think do you a recommend? Lot of people would think you're more professional if you do it via disco. Yes. I mean, it's yeah. expensive-ish, I think, for what it is. Um, Disco's website, I think disco.ac, right? Or, yeah, it's not disco.com. I've made that mistake yeah. multiple times. Um, but they are great. But yeah, so you sign up for an account, you can put songs in there. I think in the latest version, you can even put like a PDF. So you could put cool. your press release right in there and put it all be in like one file. Um, they definitely do have a free account, but I think it's limited to like 25 songs. So if you're smart and want to save money, you could probably use the free version and just put your newest three songs and make like a really lovely disco link that you can send for that release. And then when you have the next one, delete those and put new stuff in there. Um, and then if it really works out well, then you can buy it and yeah, support the company. Um, but, Sorry to interrupt, but I yeah. feel like, what do you, um, could you also say to your publisher, hey, do you guys use disco? Could I use your disco account? That's a smart way to yeah. do it, yeah. I do that with my agent all the time. I send them like a Dropbox link and then they turn it into a beautiful disco. And I believe disco was founded by music supervisors who were really frustrated about getting such messy assets and files and stuff. So yeah, we like disco. Yeah. 
that's a good thing to ask if you're ever shopping for a pub deal too. Like in terms of like coming up with business strategy, like if they can do that, that's one nice thing. Yeah. You don't have to pay for disco anymore. Exactly. <laughs> um, and again, it's like always like small things that will draw you to one over the other. So yeah. don't overthink it and just trust your gut. Yeah. But I really love your point that the, you know, can you reiterate like the, like signing with a publishing company is them wanting to take a percentage of yeah. what you're already doing. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I had that with a friend who did a, he, he produced a song that was Billboard, I think it was like a top 10 one summer. It gets recorded by all the publishers and does all the hibachi dinners and nobus uh, as they're trying to sway him to join with them. And then he picked one. And then immediately after signing the deal, never got an email back from that company. <laughs> and they just took 15% of his uh. stuff for two years because that was the deal. And they got to keep that song for the next 20 years. Uh, and I think it's still playing on radio. So like, he basically just gave away 15% of a thing that was already generating revenue and they didn't have any plan to actually, you know. I mean, do you feel that he like worked them though? Mm, he didn't, no. I think you just right. picked the one that sound. And, and they're all going to want, like if, if you're already making money, people want to take a percentage of that. So you just want to be very careful. Yeah. Uh, if you're not making money, people would probably want to take a bigger percentage just in case, right? So mm -hmm. it's good to be making more money so that you can, have more power in the negotiation process. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, it's scary regardless at any point. Yeah. Cause if you did a pub deal and someone took 50% of your song and then it blows up on TikTok and all of a sudden you're getting millions of streams mm -hmm. a month and you're actually selling tickets for your show. Yeah. That's way worse, obviously. Um, but I think an interesting thing is with like library music, mm -hmm. um, I don't want to, uh, mention too many of them by names because uh, I just don't know all the deals. Um, there are companies where you could, you know, s sign up with a music library and mm -hmm. they'll have you write 10 EDM tracks for the new reality dating show on Netflix or something. And then part of that deal could be we're going to give you $500 a track, but we keep all the publishing or 50% mm -hmm. of the publishing. And I know someone who did work for one of them and makes like $50,000 a year now pretty uh, consistently just from all the reality TV stuff that he gets placed. But then he was thinking about it one day. He's like, oh, wow, if I cut my publishing, I could make double that. I was like, yeah, but you weren't making any money before that. So it's better to have yeah. a percentage of something than, or like, what is it? Uh, it's better to make like 50% of something as opposed to 100% of nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's just good to know about where people are taking money from you and you can let it happen as long as you know what you're getting into and just be very aware of those kinds of things because you could probably be an artist these days and do a hundred percent of it yourself and not pay anybody but that would be so exhausting and, but that would be like yeah. song trust that's what i would that would that's why i say go with song trust right yeah. yes you are giving them and then at some point when yeah. it gets too exhausting for you to Keep yeah. checking the song trust account because that feasibly could be too much work at some point if you're. It shouldn't be though. A busy it's, artist. It shouldn't be. Yeah, yeah, register your songs. You're good. Like right, but yeah, it's it's just good to know where you're being taken advantage of. I guess yeah. <laughs> with anything regarding these kinds of numbers. But that's also why you need to work the deal because I do think that um, you know these maybe I'm just being mid midwestern and naive. I'm originally from the Midwest, but um, I you know I do think um, the folks signing artists to publishing deals are well intentioned but they are human, right? So that's why you need to respectfully stay in their face with your latest and greatest highlights. So they're like, oh yeah, cool. Like I, you know, that, I'm going to get this press link, you know, to this music supervisor. And, and that's, that's who I'm going to focus on. Um, 
today. So, and again, only sign any sort of admin or co-pub deal. Um, uh, you need an attorney to do that. You need to be represented. And let me also add, you need a music attorney. Okay. That's what we're going to talk about more in episode 12, but um, I've definitely seen artists um, try to take shortcuts like, oh, my family's um, real estate attorney or this or that. But there's this AI lawyer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was yeah. talking to um, uh, B, who's done um, the business affairs at Downtown Forever. She's like, yeah, what business? She's not an attorney, but business affairs is legal, as we learned in episode three. And she said one time one of their songwriters came in and said, can you take a look at my lease agreement? She's like, get this thing off my desk. I don't know anything about that. And the music business was set up to confuse artists in, the, in like the 1950s. So you really don't want someone from another type of law looking at it. And, and again, music attorney, not even like entertainment firm because they might be TV or something else. And so our industry is really specific. And also it, it can look really bad if you have a markup from an attorney that is not from our field. And then the publishing company is like, oh my, it can look really unprofessional because it's like, does this artist not know what they're doing? So it's like, you might be trying to save a little bit of, of money um, but you could also ask for the legal fees, and any good attorney would know this, to be covered in the publishing deal as part of the advance if you need help with those legal fees. So, Okay, so do we know what music publishing is and we know how to collect on it? Again, to recap, music publishing is going out and working the song as hard as possible and collecting all the money for it, just like on the recording side, that's pushing the recording, you know, like a label would work the recording as much as possible, get all the money owed to it. And then to collect on your music publishing, sign up for your performing rights organization. That's going to be ASCAP or BMI in the U.S. And then also sign up with Song Trust or do a publishing deal. But also, like, don't sit around and wait for the pub deal, in my opinion. Just get rolling with Song Trust. And then you're taken care of because that two and a half years can fly and then you're not going to get that money. So do we understand that? Yeah. And don't be discouraged when you sign up with a PRO and yeah. you get pennies at first. Yeah. If that, takes time. Yeah, it takes time. So just give them a year or two at least, yeah. which is good that that's the amount of time it takes for them to. <laughs> exactly. Um, or to be able to leave. Yeah, a okay. So hopefully that clarifies the first half of this episode's title. Music publishing, music publishing isn't scary or confusing. So hopefully we're not scared or confused at this point. Okay, great. See some head nodding. Um, so now let's move on to how, how to land a sync placement. Um, so I wrote an article a few years ago called How to Land a Sync Placement. I did not mean for that to be clickbaity. Um, but I, it was with Hypebot. So if you Google my name and that title, you can find it for free. And I still get emails from people being like, thank you, you know, for breaking this down. Um, so here's some best practices on how to set yourself up to be put in the best, best position to land a sync placement. So first, um, make sure you have instrumentals of your music. In fact, I was talking to someone before who was like, I'm making all this instrumental music, but I, I, you know, I don't have lyrics yet. And it's like, well, great. You're actually in a better position to land syncs um, than if you were submitting um, songs with lyrics, because, you know, sync is literally short for synchronization, right? You're syncing the music to picture, um, whether that's film, TV, video game, ad, you know, advertisement, advert, website, whatever. Um, so we take for granted, if you're watching a film or something, the majority of music is going to be instrumental, right? I think almost like, I'm, I maybe heard this once, maybe I'm making up like 70% of syncs are instrumental. I, I'm surprised it's not higher. I'm making that up. I didn't 
I don't know where I, I got that. It makes sense. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but the point is, yeah. make sure you have instrumentals. Uh, make sure you, if you're working with a producer, you get the instrumentals from them. Um, I, you know, that's standard. But in my experience, like we always have to ask the producer for instrumentals because they can just forget. Um, so just get all over that. And then we had um, Lauren Ross from Terrorbird on season one. Uh, for this episode, she was also saying master the instrumentals. Um, that yeah. can really make a difference. We learned all about mastering um, in, in the previous episode. So, okay, so make instrumentals. And then, okay, so you're starting out. You want to start landing some syncs. Um, and I'm excited for you to agree or disagree on some of this stuff. Um, there are uh, websites like Free Music Archives and Creative Commons where you can upload your music and it can be licensed for free. But the license is they have to give you credit. So I know artists that have actually landed upwards of like 10,000 syncs that way. And it drives so much traffic to their streaming that they pay all their expenses through their streaming royalties. They get super mad if someone breaks the license and doesn't put the credit. Like the credit is the license. But if you are a public facing artist, that can be a great way to get going. And I also know artists that have gotten started there because sometimes there's music supervisors like working on a super low budget project, working on a documentary, and they find artists there that they really fall in love with. And then they come back to that artist when they're working on a bigger uh, bigger budget project um, and then are like, okay, great. Like it was actually... Um, Who's that big action actor, Jason Statham mm -hmm. or something? Yeah. So I know someone that was on Free Music Archives and... Um, and then and it was a smaller music or it was a music supervisor working on a smaller project, but then came back and licenses music for a huge um, action film. So that's a good way to get going. Anyone can sign up for that. Um, you were talking about music libraries. So um, there are, you know, what I, I or industry, I guess I am an industry person. I am an industry person. What industry folks might call like music retitling companies um, that anyone can sign up for as well. And um you know, again, look at the terms, but they're generally going to take like a 50% commission and they're also going to retitle your work so they can get a cut of the PRO fees, which kind of sucks, but hear, hear me out on this. Um, so I was working with like a brand, brand new band once. Um, literally, I started working with them after their second or third show, which is a little misleading because I'd been in other bands before, but like super new. Um, and I signed them up for, um, you know, a music library company and they ended up landing... Um, a $10,000 sync for an Advil ad, which on one hand, um, you know, 10 grand might sound pretty good, um, but that's really low for a major pharmaceutical brand, but whatever, like we all have to start somewhere. And also keep in mind with the 10 grand, the music library company is taking 50%. I receive 15% as um, the manager. So that actually gets cut down um, pretty fast, but still, they're still getting, you know, a few thousand dollars. They're, they're brand, brand new, um, but they owned their recording side and that ad ended up getting played on prime time during the World Series. And, you know, it brought in over six figures in their BMI account, right? Like that went through the roof. Suddenly, like a hundred grand is coming in through their BMI account. And I'm dating myself with this example, but also because they own their recording, um, their iTunes numbers spiked. And so they started getting all that money. And again, please, you know, read everything before you sign up with it. But usually with music libraries, you can get out of the deal within a reasonable amount of time. So that's exactly what I did. And then I went and did um, a very lucrative um, publishing deal for them. And they went on to land a lot more placements. So um, 
you know, music retitling is a little gross, but we all have to start somewhere. And that was a good entry point for that artist. And not every library is does retitling. They might just have you like commission, you know, specific things. That's great. Hansimer has a library, extreme music, and they do buy some catalogs, I guess, but the majority of it is stuff like Hans wrote some demos for some movie and then it never ended up in the film. So then they're like, great, let's just put it on this website. You can, so you can license the, the demos for your reality TV show or whatever. Yeah. Um, and the other good thing with those companies is like extreme, for instance, has deals with some of the studios. So Mm -hmm. I think it's like Disney or Hulu or Viacom do stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So like they might have like a blanket license deal, which means that they pay that like a company like extreme, however much money every year to be able to use any track from their catalog wherever they want. And because they paid you up front to write that Mm -hmm. piece of music, you're not going to get any additional money when it gets synced in that show. But those royalties will add up because they can just license your music for free. So they're like, great, let's just grab as much of this awesome stuff uh, as possible. So, And by royalties, that's going to be your BMI, BMI, your ASCAP. Yeah, hopefully you own your publishing, but definitely your writer's share that should belong to you. Um, But... It just depends on the library. And I guess that's one good thing to know about is that some of them do have a higher chance of actually getting your music into a show. And then you could, you know, do a couple songs here and there, maybe for one of them, get your music on VH1 and MTV Mm -hmm. or whatever else, right? And then use that as like a pitching factor for your next song and then make the next thing the big the big one. <laughs> That's right. Because, um, and you know, MTV, Beach one, those are Viacom companies when we mentioned Viacom. And so, and, and that's another nice thing actually with, um, free music archives and creative commons, you're showing that your music is syncable, yeah. you know, like not everyone makes syncable music and that's totally okay too. You know, like I've worked with artists like the Dresden dolls and the fiery furnaces. And I remember, um, you know, uh, their sync companies or publishing companies or whoever was pitching them the sync saying to me, um, Music supervisors love these bands. They want to be on the guest list. They're fans of these bands. But the music is too weird or it stands out too much, right? And the whole point is sync, right? Like synchronizing. To, I mean, you know, I mean this with love, but you probably make weird music sometimes when like folks are looking for like something to stand out or whatever. But you guys know what I mean. Like if the music stands out too much, um, that was actually... Uh, really helpful feedback. So showing that, oh, hey, I landed this MTV sync or, hey, I, I have a sync in this documentary or on this nonprofit's website, you're showing that your music is syncable if you are interested in a publishing deal, which um, I'm, I'm all for publishing deals as long as you work them. Hopefully we didn't scare you off too much on uh, they're just they're just making money. Again, if you need money, if you need to pay your rent, yeah. then get money and pay the rent and then... Well, It is, it is, and I know so many artists want this too. It is nice to have a team also. Mm. So it's like, if you're interested, I mean, you probably do so much of this on your own. Um, And we're going to get into Matt's incredible career in a second. But, um, you know, if you are interested in co-writes, if you are interested in writing for other people, that's something um, your publisher can do for you. But I'm hesitating and saying like, you need to let them know that. They may say yeah. that in the courting process, but then you need to be like, I want to co-write. I want to write for other artists. Because like I said, otherwise they're going to be distracted with, um, you know, their kids and their life and other songwriters and a million other things. Yeah. Great. So, oh, and some of those um, music libraries, music retitling companies, that's going to be companies like Jingle Punks, mm. you know, as a concrete example for you. APM. Yeah. Big ones. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. So then there's also, so that's like a 50% commission. 
Um, and then there's also selective sync companies, and that's going to be like Terrorbird right here in Williamsburg, Bank Robber, Zinc Music. Sync agents, as they're referred to sometimes. Too. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know that. That's great. Uh, music alternatives. And so those companies are very cool. selective. Oh, sorry. sorry. No, I took it back, actually. <laughs> but yeah, like Terrorbird, I think they'll they'll do a deal with you for one album if you want, you know? So it's like you don't have to give away all your stuff. You could make it very specific. Just this one song for this period. Yeah. Um, that's a cool thing about the business is that you can kind of make up your own deal. Like, technically, you could make it that you get paid on Tuesdays or something if you really want to in your contract. Um, but... They might not agree to it, but you could make up whatever kind of things you want there. Um, and it doesn't hurt to do one album with one sync agency or do one song for one, you know, music library. But it's just good to know about all the options that exist. Know that at the end of the day, if you can write a song and, you know, finish uh, producing and mixing and finishing a song, and then you have a filmmaker friend who's like, I want to use your song. I'll give you $4,000. You get to keep everything. That's a way better deal because you get to own your song still. But that's pretty rare. Mm -hmm. And maybe someone at Terrorbird knows a filmmaker and then they can say, oh, I've got this new client. Well, that's their job. Sorry to interrupt. So that's why you hire someone like that. So if you have a bunch of filmmaker friends, start there. That's the smart way to do it. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. For sure. Um, But yeah, these companies are going to receive, you're going to own your rights with these companies. Um, a lot of them just do sync pitching. Some of them have developed admin publishing deals. Frankly, sometimes I go to them and I say, oh, I have an artist who already has a publishing deal, which just means they're with SongTrust, yeah. which is technically true. They're, um, yeah, they're, deal. Yeah, they're, their songwriting is being administered on. And so these companies will just um, receive 25 or 30 percent. Um, of the fee that's landed, the $10,000 or the $5,000 or the $50,000 or whatever, not of your PRO and these other things. Um, so like, I, so I call these selective sync pitching companies, which I just made up, um, but that's because what that's what they are. So the music libraries and Creative Commons and Free Music Archive um, will accept everyone, um, but these companies are really selective. And again, it doesn't necessarily... It's not a reflection on your music. It's what's syncable or not. So like I said, with, um, you know, some of the indie bands like the Dresden Dolls and the Fiery Furnaces that I worked with, um, ironically, I mean, um, the Fiery Furnaces are probably still with Bank Robber, but that's where I was getting the feedback. Like, you know, music supervisors love this music, but it's too weird. But then I've also worked with artists, you know, that are represented by Terrorbird and stuff that, um, you know, you guys have never heard of, but that sync was their number one revenue stream. So I mentioned my friend, Lauren Ross. She actually started the licensing division at Kill Rock Stars, and then she started the licensing division at, um, at Terrorbird. So I definitely encourage you to go back to that episode in season one, because like I learned so much. It was like such a deep dive. But anyway, I, I sent her um, a young band once and didn't hear back right away. No big deal. Um, she was super busy. Oh, not to jump around and, and get too many, uh, get back into the weeds on my nerdy not to use the word admin to be even more confusing, but with Boomerang for Gmail, it also has email tracking. So you know if people read your email or not, or it went into spam. Um, so that's very helpful. Because otherwise you can be like, oh, I didn't hear back, but maybe it went, it went into spam, right? And if it did, and you follow up and follow up, and you're not getting that red receipt, then you can pick up the phone and try to find a human there. So anyway, so this was, this was before email tracking, though. 
I sent Lauren um, this artist's music, didn't hear back, no big deal. She's super busy. And a few months later, she wrote to me. She's like, oh my gosh, this is so syncable. I can crush it on this. I'm so sorry for the delay. And she did. She like went and landed all these placements, you know, like fifty thousand, like a fifty thousand dollar like juice ad in the UK, a fifty thousand dollar. Tr- this is like a band selling a hundred tickets, you know. So again, there are bigger bands that sell a lot of tickets and, and have a lot of fans that don't land any syncs, and then there are some artists that you've ne- there's tons of artists you've never heard of that land plenty of syncs. So don't be offended if Terrorbird, Music Alternative, Zinc, Bank Robber turn you down. Like Lauren, you know, who I keep talking about, Scott Cresto at Music Alternatives. These people like have brilliant ears. They know exactly. I, I never consider myself like a A&R person. Like there's people that know like this will be a hit on the radio or this will get synced. That's who these folks are. So don't be offended um, if they turn you down. But if they take you on, great. And then same thing, work them, right? Because they're super busy. They're dealing with music supervisors, artists, files, all this stuff. So again, I know I said it before, but um, make sure they're loaded up um, respectfully with your latest and greatest highlights, your press hits, your tour dates, guest list offers, all that stuff. And then, of course, you can sign um, with a publishing company, which we already talked about. There's admin deals um, and there's co-publishing deals. um, And then... Uh, you need to work those folks as well. So that's those are the options um, to land a sync. I have a couple more comments on that, but any anything to add or subtract? I think that's pretty well covered. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any other advice. Again, I don't usually have the guest on for this portion, but like Matt and I geek on this stuff anyway, so I just wanted you here as my friend to <laughs> do this with me. No, I think that's pretty... Pretty much covers most of it, yeah. Great. Okay, awesome. Okay, so uh, I just also want to make a note um, about exclusivity. So a lot of times with these music libraries, um, they'll be non-exclusive. And so as a young manager, I made the mistake of like, oh, the more the merrier. Who doesn't want more people working your music, right? Well, the music industry is small. The music supervision community is even smaller. And these music supervisors are really busy, right? They're dealing with producers, directors, like, you know, tight timeline with tight, tight budgets. And so I had a young, young band up for like a $40,000, $50,000 trailer for a Vince Vaughn film. Um, and this is when I had them signed up with multiple music libraries. And um, when the music supervisor realized that two companies that pit- had pitched it, yeah, they were like, fun. bye. Yeah. I-, I don't have time to deal with whatever mess this is. And they moved on to someone else. So I would, you know, be really mindful about, like, picking a company, really with everything we're talking about this on, on this entire podcast, if you can find a human there, right? Um, so find... Find a music library, find, you know, if you, or a selective sync. Well, you're going to know a human if it's a selective um, sync pitching company. But it's really the uh, music libraries that are going to be, we're not exclusive, we're not exclusive. Don't sign up with five of them. Pick one, find a human, offer, you know, to come play their office, offer to do a webcast, do something, you know, for some sort of personal touch because you don't want to be in the train wreck situation that I unfortunately put this artist in when I was like 25, 26. Um, and then ended up losing that sync. So um, again, the non-exclusive thing can be very attractive, but it's not its not as good as it sounds. Right. Yeah. And then we also talked about in the um, business affairs episode, um, if you have co-writers getting their share pre-cleared for sync um, and then being really upfront about that, you know, obviously your publisher is going to know that or any sort of selective pick, uh, pick, 
selective sync pitching company, um, but just remind them that, or, or even like you have a friend who's a director, right? Be like, well, yeah, I co-wrote this song, but I have an agreement saying it's pre-cleared for sync because if it's not, they're going to have to go get the permission from all of your writers, whether it's two or five or 18. And so that can be a huge turnoff for music supervisors because it's not like a laziness thing. It's a time and a budget thing. And so they don't have time to be, you know, chasing your co-writer who's on yoga retreat and off devices or whatever. Um, and so it's they might reject your song before um, they even hear it because they see multiple co-writers. So just make sure you're really upfront that my co-writer or co-writers are pre-cleared for sync. And it's like, oh, wow, they know what they're doing. It's all about, it's going to sound weird, but make uh, the other person's job easier, right? And that's what you're doing um, with pre-clear, you know, pre-clearing any co-writers for sync, which we talked about in episode three. It doesn't hurt to just put one stop in the file name. I was going to say that next. Oh, yeah. Literally say that. In the file name, yeah. Yeah. So so what Matt's talking about is um, most of these uh, selective sync pitching companies, (coughs) excuse me, definitely the... uh, um, the uh, uh, music library companies, um, a lot of them are going to ask to be uh, one stop. And so what that means is they want to represent the both sides that we talked about. They want to represent the recording and they want to represent the songwriting side as well, because it's going to make, you know, I'm sure there's some music supervisors that probably only um, work with one stop music if it's a really like tight budget or tight timeline, because again, that's you have to get the permission on the recording side and the songwriting side. So if Terror Bird is able to say to a music supervisor, oh, it's one stop, we rep- represent both sides, they're like, oh, I just have to deal, I mean, in a good way, deal with Josh at Terror Bird on both things. So that's what's called one stop. And I really love that, what you just said, and I want to echo that. Matt is saying, um, if you if you control both sides, if you own the recording and you... Um, you know, did uh, you wrote you wrote the song and you pre-cleared or you pre-cleared any songwriters? Literally put one stop, maybe in caps, in the file name, right? So that's going to be. I, I love that because it's positive, right? Instead of me being like, well, it's not like being negative; it's just true, right? Go out and make sure your co-writers are pre-cleared and be upfront about that. Matt saying like brag, like, hey, we're one stop, you know, and that's. What I'm trying to say is, <laughs> in my smoke-hazed uh, brain here, um, where it can be a turn-off, maybe, to have multiple songwriters, it's a turn-on to see one stop, Yeah, which I really, really like. That's great advice. Great. Um, so that is our music publishing isn't scary or confusing, plus how to land a sync placement section. Um, we will have time for questions at the end, but... I need to share your extraordinary career um, with these folks, which uh, we previewed a little bit at the beginning. But I want to share how Matt and I met. Um, so was it a Facebook message? Did you look? Well, no, I know that. Yeah. I know that. But when you contacted me. It was a Facebook message. Okay. Yeah. That's why I couldn't find it in my email. So, <coughs> excuse me. I get this uh, Facebook message, apparently, which I, I didn't actually write down. Thank you for sending that to me. But in my brain, it was... Uh, Because I mentioned I have this first book, Interning 101. So Matt was in college, and he said, hey, um, I'm an NYU student, and I'm interning for Hans Zimmer, and I didn't really know what to do. But then I read your Interning 101 book, and and then that taught me what uh, what to do, and now I'm scoring for Netflix. I'm like, can we meet? 
Like, that's ridiculous. So, um, so yes, we did meet at, uh, at CMJ for folks that remember the College Music Journal and the big... Um, that's so long ago now. I know, and the big conference they would have here. It's 10 years since it's been over, right? Yeah, and yeah. it was a big deal in the 90s and stuff. So I was on a panel at CMJ, not in the 90s. I was a kid in the 90s. But um, so we met then. But again, that message was so memorable to me. I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Um, but let's start, you know, even before then. Yeah. Where are you from? I'm from New York City. Yeah. yeah. Love it. Um, so what was it like growing up and, and playing gigs here? Yeah. I mean, I don't really have much else to compare it to. So I don't, I don't know, like living in New York City just seemed normal as a kid. I, I know. <laughs> and I know New York kids are like that, but I'm literally from a village in Wisconsin. Right. So I, I did have, have mall envy though. Like, okay. I never got to hang out <laughs> at not malls after much. school. It yeah. seems fun. I don't know. Right. Okay. So even <laughs> though it felt normal, what was it like growing up and, and playing gigs here? Yeah. So I guess, um, I think I was 13 when Guitar Hero 3 came out. And then uh, my brother and I were like obsessive with that game. Uh, he'd always beat me at like the guitar battle or whatever it was called. Uh, and then my mom had an acoustic guitar in her closet. So I picked it up and had her teach me some chords and started taking guitar lessons. Uh, that went from like a couple years later to playing in some bands in high school. Um, it was really interesting with being like 15 or 16 and realizing that there's very few places you can actually play in New York City because you would think play at a bar, but if you're 16, you can't get in. So then it's like a whole like, wild thing. I really think there should be some all ages venues yeah. in the city. It would be really great. Um, and yeah, I would just like make like a giant Google Chrome window with like a hundred tabs of like every bar or like the bitter end, like all these places at 16 would just be calling like a bunch of them after school and like seeing if they would take an EPK and uh, What's an EPK? An electronic know. press kit. Yeah. It was uh, something I read about on the internet that I should do. So <laughs> I had a terrible one. It was probably like a PDF file with like a photo of a guitar <laughs> and the band name. Um, and then, yeah, I think I remember like doing all that kind of stuff and then getting to play some shows. And um, I was like in this one like cover band when I was like 15 or 16 then when I was 17, wanted to like have like a real band with like original songs and started a new group. And then somehow our first show was at the Marlin Room at Webster Hall. I don't remember exactly the details of like what call or there was something about like some Facebook group where someone's like, hey, I have an opening band that I have to back out. Does anyone know any rock bands? And I posted in there and said like, look what this video of us has like 300 views. <laughs> and they're like, great. great. Yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll have you open. Um, so, so that was cool. And it was also really funny just like being backstage and like everyone's just like partying and like losing their minds like before or after the show. And I'd just be like doing Spanish homework in the back. Good for you. Uh, I think it, that was my college essay too. Nice. Yeah, I was like doing Spanish homework at the backstage at like later the studio Webster Hall before a show and just like watching everyone party and just like trying to survive the next day at school. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of fun. Um, I realized pretty early on though, I hated like, lugging giant guitar amplifiers to venues around New York City. Uh, can't imagine what it's like for a drummer to have to like carry a whole drum kit <laughs> to a show. Um, and the most fun part of that process was just being in the studio and writing and producing and recording mm -hmm. um, for me at that time. And then I wanted to just learn how to produce. And I think I got a copy of Logic Pro 10 for $200. Never had to pay for an upgrade since. And yeah, it's... Yeah, that just kind of changed my life. I would just play guitar into my computer, and this is amazing. Um, 
I, I went to NYU. I was in the music tech program my freshman year at Steinhardt, and then later switched to this uh, Clive Davis Institute and record music. And I think at one point I kind of wanted to do like the Max Martin thing of like pop production. And then I got obsessed with Foster the People. And the first Did Foster you really album, meet Foster the People's producer in an Uber then? Or because you referenced them already? Said they, okay. That was a. <laughs> I wasn't sure if they were joking or whatever, yeah. but then they played a song. It was definitely a demo. Like it didn't sound well mixed mm-hmm. and it was definitely Mark Foster singing. I was like, Oh, it's crazy. And I don't think the song ever came out, right. but it was like really funny that that was like yeah. a thing. Small world. Uh, it really is. Yeah. At Evernorth health services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best. It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. But then um, the first Foster album, Mark Foster, like the, the front man, uh, he worked at this place called Mophonics. And he was doing music for, like, for advertisements throughout the day. Um, that's another kind of job too. You could always work at like an ad music company and be like an in-house writer. And then when Coca-Cola needs someone to do a hip hop beat in two hours to picture, then they'll go to one of the writers and say like, Hey, we need something that sounds like this hip hop beat in two hours. Can you do something? And that's a fine day job in New York city. Um, Mark was at the location in LA at the time, I think, but then it's kind of wild that he would use that studio to do the first Foster album and write and produce a lot of it. And then he would do that at night and then the day would just be writing music for, for ads. And he even did this like big muscle milk commercial. It's like with the whistle and the ukulele. <laughs> um, and I think pumped up kicks was written for an ad oh, at one I point. And then I don't think it got placed. And then he decided to make it into a full song and that became like the biggest sync of that year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I kind of, wanted to do that thing, did some ad music for a while, interned at some companies, but then realized just in those like two or three years that I'd been interning and writing some music for ads that the money was going really down. Mm-hmm. Like it was very feasibly like possible you could do a hundred thousand dollar sync in 2014 or 2016. And I feel like those are kind of rare these days. Mm-hmm. Like it's more like 40 or 50 and, and big movie trailers are still going to make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. But those are so rare. And it's like, you're like a unicorn if you can land one because <laughs> mm-hmm. it's just so impossible. And then you do. Um, and it works out great. But that could take years or it could also never happen. So it's just mm-hmm. like, it's so wild. Um, and the other part of it too, outside of the money getting lower, was that it just becomes less and less creatively fulfilling after a while because you're just serving the story, which is to pump up the audience and sell a product 90% of the time. <laughs> Uh, or be very sad and sell a product or mm-hmm. tell someone about something if it's that kind of infomercial or something. Um, and then I got really big into film and TV music, um, started listening to Hans Zimmer's music on repeat and realized and I had a for friend. Those that, well, yeah. yeah, for those that don't know who Hans, I mean, who haven't paid attention to film credits. Who's yeah, Hans I think Zimmer. everyone here knows who Hans Zimmer yeah. is, right? But just in case, yeah, like okay. if my mom's listening. For sure, yeah. Uh, Hans is the film and TV composer uh, behind such titles as Pirates of the Caribbean, Dune, uh, Lion King, Kung Fu Panda, uh, Thelma and Louise, uh, 
let's keep going. I mean, I like there's, he was on 60 Minutes recently, too. Yeah. That, that's great. And I, I mean, this is very naive, but to me, it's like John Williams and Hans Zimmer are like the two composers that have scored the majority of films, major films, it feels like. That's probably pretty accurate, yeah. I think they're like in the two, the top five right. list of top grossing composers of all time. Sure. <laughs> Film and TV composers. At yeah. Least, yeah. Uh, which is kind of wild. <laughs> so um, let's go back for a second, though. Uh, huh? Like, how old, when did you start exploring recording and electronic music? Ooh, I think I was 17 because okay. I just wanted to be like, I mean, I want to be a guitar player in a band, but more than that, I also wanted to be like a session guitar player, like going mm-hmm. to the studios and just like laying down guitar parts. And that was my dream up until like 21 or 20 or something. Yeah. Whenever I realized there's like way more stuff you can do outside of just playing guitar. Right. Um, and I think I would have done that had I gone to Berkeley College of Music, mm-hmm. but I was deciding between Berkeley and NYU. And um, yeah. And this is the version of me that went to NYU. <laughs> That's just great. an alternate reality where I was a session guitar player. <laughs> uh, so when did you start writing jingles, you know, or sorry, how did you start writing jingles for ads while in college? Um, and I, I really liked this info you sent over, in particular with the challenge of creating earworms, hmm. which have to be even more concise than in pop music. Uh, let me say that again. Um, with the challenge of creating earworms, which have to be even more concise than in pop music. Like, why was that appealing to you? So how did you start doing, that's amazing. Well, I was thinking that like with Foster People, a lot of their songs and like riffs and hooks are so catchy because like, it's so hard to get like a piece of music stuck in someone's head. Like the the Kit Kat one, like give me a break, give me a break, give me a break of that. Or like 1-800-CARS-FOR-KIDS. Like we all can probably hear that melody right now, even though that's like a 25 second commercial, right? I was thinking like Mark's sensibilities in pop probably came from that world of doing ads. So it'd be like a really cool thing to learn. Um, And that was my first internship. I think, yeah, after my freshman year into my sophomore year at school, um, I knew the thing about Mophonics because he mentioned it in a lot of interviews where he used to work there. So I saw they had a Manhattan office and I just called them and got on the phone with someone named Chris and then uh, or sorry, it was someone named Amanda there and asked if they do internships. And she said, well, sometimes, uh, but like, here's our email address, like send us your resume and we'll get back to you. And I sent my resume over email, didn't hear back for two weeks. Let me I, put a pin in that for a second. Yeah. I know this is not the interning 101 uh, podcast, which you have actually been a guest on. Yeah. Um, but you reached out. Yeah. Like that's really important for any young listeners. You can reach out to anyone. And a lot of times companies that are so busy, they because a lot of times companies are so busy, they haven't even thought about uh, having an internship program. So it's like, if you reach out, you could actually start that um, You could be their first program. intern, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, so I, I sent the email, didn't hear back for two weeks, sent a follow-up email, didn't hear back for like three or four days. So I called again, uh, which I probably wouldn't recommend doing. But No, I, just I would. It. And that's because yeah. that's where email tracking comes in, right? Like, did it go into spam? Yeah, What's going right. on? And then- Then call. Yeah, I remember calling and then Amanda saying like, oh yeah, we read your resume. We just, uh, we're busy with something. Can you come in on Friday, like in two days for an interview? I was like, yeah, great. And then it just all came from there. Um, I learned a lot there. Like I was writing music. And sorry, was this at yeah. Heavy Duty Projects or where was this? That was at Heavy Duty. Okay. Yeah. And so what is Heavy Duty? Sorry, sorry, I'm Phonics. Okay, bag. great. Got it. Yeah. Um, Heavy Duty was the next year. Cool. Um, but then, yeah, when I was there, um, yeah, they like, you know, let, let me clean the kitchen or like water the plants. But then after like doing all like the basic kind of tasks, um, they'd get briefs in and it'd be things that their composers were working on. Here's a Google ad. And then, hey, Matt, if you want to take a stab at this, here's wow. the video. And like, would love for you to just read the brief. 
and try to write something for it. So then you look at the brief and do what they asked for. And then hopefully, um, yeah, I mean, at that point, it's kind of wild because even if like a company like a Mophonics or Heavy Duty or whatever gets the brief, there's probably six other ad agencies yep. or music ad agencies mm-hmm. or music agencies. I don't know. No, I would say ad agency. Yeah. yeah like trying to pitch to win that, that, um, the contract and to get that huge amount of money, which I think that, like there was a Google one that was like $60,000 sure. that another intern actually got. Wow. And then, <laughs> yeah, it was kind of crazy. And they got paid, They got right? paid, yeah, okay, $60,000. <laughs> yeah. And that 60000 actually, now that I think about it, that's probably just for them. And then the company probably got an extra. Yeah. Yeah. It's so wild. <laughs> it's a lot of money for a college kid. Absolutely. Um, a lot for anyone. And actually, I don't think I ever got anything when I was there, but then when I studied abroad in Berlin, mm-hmm. I met this producer at an Ableton event and we just like immediately like fell in love with each other's like style of music. And um, he offered to like drive me home and like, we were just like playing like a lot of the same like thrash metal bands that would, um, I guess a lot of 16 year olds listen to. And it was kind of funny. Like we loved the same bands, but we, but he did like a lot of like house music. And at that time I was doing like poppy, um, more future bass sounding things. Um, and then we would just meet up like every couple of days to write music. And the first time we did, it was supposed to be a two hour session and it turned into 12 hours just because it was so much fun. And then the next day I wake up at like 8 AM and he's like, Hey, uh, check out this link. Like, um, I sent some of the songs over to this company and we got it, uh, approved if we want to be on like German TV. And I was like, cool. So that was like my first sync. And it was really funny too. Cause I was studying abroad. So it was like, it turned into a whole like nightmare to try to get paid because I did the work while I was there. Right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was uh, pretty funny. I just say I was in New York, and I think it's fine. It's why did you? Oh, well, why? Well, because, like, if you were a student, like, studying abroad over here, oh, and you got, like, a song. Visa place, issues. It's a visa and, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. got it. Because I'm a student, sense. so you're not supposed to make money if you're a student. That's messed know, up. You know, when I've taught undergrad yeah. classes in management and stuff, I've just, like, or, or like, uh, live shows, I'm just, like, if you make any money, keep it. And if yeah. the school wants to yell at me. But, I mean, it's not 60 grand or whatever. Right. But, it must be so complicated for like tour managers yeah. to do well, overseas tours. Uh, not really. Um, that's why you have a good business manager. Yeah, and and yeah. we'll, we'll talk about that more in episode 12. Cool. <laughs> um, so as we mentioned, uh, you went on to Heavy Duty Projects next. Um, so what is Heavy du- Duty Projects and what did you do there? It's a different company now than it was when I was there. Um, I don't know if they've had any interns in New York, at least, before me. Um, but I met... Uh, this woman who worked there. Wait, if they didn't have interns before, how'd you get that one? Well, I met this woman who worked there at a panel. I think it might've been a Grammy something event and I was in Grammy U uh, as a college student, which if anyone here or anyone listening is in college, totally check out Grammy U. It's such a cool Mm -hmm. resource for college students. Um, They do a lot of events and things. And uh, yeah, I was at some event, I think on sync licensing or something like that. And then she was talking and I really liked Ariel Reichstag, who was a producer and co-founder of the company. Um, and went up to her and said that I like, interned at Mophonics the year before and she's friends with a lot of people there because the sync mm-hmm. world is so small. Yeah. And then um, I think emailed me actually, or I emailed them after saying it was great meeting you. Yeah. And then a couple weeks later, they emailed me asking if I'd be interested in an internship that summer. And then... Yeah, it just felt pretty natural and right. So, yeah, I went over there for that summer. Um, I needed an internship that summer to keep me busy. So, so it worked out great. 
Um, their office is like way smaller in New York than like the, the LA side of things. I think it's like two or three people here or was at the time. Um, but it was great. And just like you get more insights into how people like pitch music and try to get it placed um, in ads. And and yeah, they're just like a really cool company and they do a lot of exciting things. They actually do a publishing side of things now, which is really mm-hmm. fascinating how they've expanded. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, and one of the people who was there when I was an intern was this guy named Dan Nigro who produced Olivia Rodrigo's album. Mm-hmm. And no big deal. It was really funny. Like he <laughs> sent me an email once. He's like, hey, I know you're the intern. Can you like make this like music video of this song I wrote for my girlfriend for her birthday? <laughs> I was like, cool. Yeah. So I, like, I got the files from him and like made a little music video. And that song is still stuck in my head to this day. It's about her dog named Cosmo. Mm-hmm. And it was just really well produced. And I'd like nerd out and like ask him about like a favorite guitar rig presets and things like that. Um, and he was in a band in New York at one point. And I'd actually seen this one YouTube video that he'd made where it was like a Nike commercial parody um, of like Aerosmith did this. Sorry, it was a Gap commercial. And Aerosmith did this weird commercial where it's Steven Tyler with a bandana and just like smacking the shit out of a snare drum. I remember then, that. Uh, Joe Perry's just like slide guitar. And then they made like a, a parody video of that. And it didn't even get like more than 20,000 views, but I just saw it because I was a huge Aerosmith fan as a kid. And uh, yeah, it was kind of funny that I knew of him because of that before meeting him. Um, I don't know why I said that. Oh, really I love it. Any value here. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> Um, oh, and I meant to say too, and um, college students and interns interns can get mad at me about this if you want, but um, when you're talking about your first internship, watering the plants and stuff, mm-hmm. it's like, like listen and observe what's going on. Like you probably, you probably did know this word, but like, what's a brief, like what's a music, like start to learn these terms, start to immerse yourself in it. So, and, and then it ended up leading to work for you. So mm-hmm. um, I just, that's my interning 101 side uh, coming out. But anyway, from there, how did you get your internship uh, with Hans Zimmer? And, and what was that like? That was, well, I had a friend who used to work at Hans's company. Uh, it's called Remote Control Productions um, in Santa Monica in LA. And yeah, I went through this phase, just listening to a bunch of Hans Zimmer music, thinking like, yeah, I think film scoring sounds like a lot of fun and yeah. love to learn more. So start watching every video I could find on film scoring. Um, and then I was like, I think I'd want to like see if it's a possibility to intern for him. Um, so I called that friend who used to work there and asked, cause, and they told me that they started as an intern and then slowly like climbed the, the ladder or whatever. And then the ladder to what, what's it like to, to work for Hans working, I guess for Hans as a composer and yeah. like assistant composer, I don't know. What the and can you explain is. a little bit how that works? Cause that was so fascinating to me the last time we got together because most people think, oh, well Hans is doing the composing. So why would yeah. you have to hire composers? Well, there's a couple of reasons. I mean, when you're working on, I mean, let alone just like one movie, which could yeah. be a ton of work, like Hans is doing like six at the same time, probably, yeah. right? Um, but what Hans might do is write like a giant 10 to 15 minute piece of music, like a, a suite for a film, um, or even like a couple of them. So like one could be like, if the main character's name is Tom, like sad Tom and happy Tom and like all these kinds of pieces of music. And then if the filmmaker likes it, great. But then once you're working the picture, you might need help taking these pieces of music and putting it towards picture, right? Um, because the F minor chord doesn't hit on the frame of the person crying or like there's nothing happening. Mm-hmm. Like 
a tear slowly forms down the face or whatever, and then you might just want like a note or something there. So you might need some help, just like have people help arrange the music and it's still like the main themes and all mm-hmm. that. Um, I guess other situations would be like, I mean, yeah, there are times where like Hans will just like give a scene to someone and have them take a stab at it wow. and give them the additional music credit. So that's pretty cool too. Yeah. I think that happened for Ramin Javadi, the guy who did uh, Game of Thrones and mm-hmm. House of the Dragon. Because um, he was an intern, and I don't—I wasn't there at the time, but the story I heard is that he was an intern, and they were working on Pirates of the Caribbean, which I think was scored the whole first movie in three weeks. Um, and one of those nights, like, probably in the first or second week, Ramin was, like, in the kitchen just cleaning up, and then uh, Hans was about to head home at, like, one or two in the morning. <laughs> And then Ramin just asked, like, hey, is it cool if I, like, hop in there and, like, take a stab at this, like, one scene? And I was like, knock yourself out. Give, like, the keys to the room. And lets Ramin, like, spend the whole night till probably, like, 10 or 11 a.m. writing a piece of music. And the next day, the director shows up. And, like, they're playing music from everyone. And, like, all of the cues, uh, cues being, like, a piece of music for a film or TV project. Um, so, like, all the music is just being shot down. Like, no, this one's not good. So it's not good. And then they play Ramin's piece, and it's like, okay, like this we've one's got this fine. one other one. And it was the one scene where, like, Jack and Will are fighting, and it's a whole sword fight. Um, I think Han said it was written so well that it felt like the scene was edited to the music. Wow. <laughs> the way that Ramin did it. And then he said, like, yeah, you're never making another cup of coffee for me again. And then that's how his career kind of got started in that world. So, wow. yeah. Um, yeah, so stuff like that can happen. And I've heard of things like that recently, too, where, like, someone's interning. But you don't want to, like, overstep yourself yeah. either. Um, I think in that situation, it was probably good that Hans was heading out. And then... Exactly. I mean, it just, like... As long as he didn't, like, set the computer on fire. And and I kind of get that mentality to some extent of, like, if I had an intern and you, like, make a cup of coffee, which I would never want an intern making me coffee, just out of principle, but... Um, uh, or at least pay them to do it. But anyways... Um, if I had an intern make a cup of coffee and I gave them the exact directions and they gave it back to me and it wasn't right, then I do get that thing of like, well, if they can't even make the coffee, how can 100%. I trust them to send this email, right? Yep. So that's those latter steps of trying to prove yourself. Okay, they can do that. Yeah. Here's a flash drive with all the music for this movie. Drive it to Warner Brothers on time. Mm-hmm. And then if you do that, great. Oh, can you like send this email? Oh, can you do this music thing? Like we need to take this piece of music and shorten it by 20 seconds, but still make it feel musical. That's not really writing. That's just a musical conform. So yeah, I kind of get that idea of trying to like prove yourself in like little ways and then gain the trust to be able to do those things. Um, Cause if you're really talented and amazing at music, but you're not good at sending emails on time, I could say, Hey, I want to license your piece of music and I'm going to pay you $50,000 and you didn't reply to me within four days, yeah. all of a sudden opportunity might be gone. Mm-hmm. That sucks because that piece of music could have been perfect, yeah. but you just didn't reply. So just, they didn't know if you could license your song. And that kind of stuff happens a lot. And that's why music editors will go to like a music library or a one-stop because they know yeah. it's done. As soon as I put it into this thing, someone can clear it even after the fact of it being on TV if they needed to. Yep. It's like, it's not going to be a pain. And that's... Um, That's huge. Yeah. Yeah. And if you want some help with that flow to help make your life um, not to just you're addicted to your phone more than we already are. Personally, I try to respond to all emails within 24 business hours. So what that means is like, 
if someone responds to me on Thursday, I'm going to respond to them by Friday. But if, if someone or if someone reaches out to me on Friday, um, I'll respond by Monday, right? Or if there's a holiday in between or whatever. I mean, unfortunately, sometimes your film and TV world can move faster than that. But like, you know, if there's any, this is really lame, but like if there's anything I'm proud of in my career, it's my reputation for reliability. Folks know I'm going to get back to them. But that, that's how I do things. I try, I try to get back to everyone within 24 business hours. You really do a great job of that, Thank too. Thank you. It's, like, shocking. Appreciate <laughs> that. I'm a, I'm a little behind while we're filming this podcast season. Right. I don't care because I'm making this my priority. So <laughs> folks, folks can wait two days or whatever. I met a manager who told me, like, they wake up at 6 in the morning at, I think it was, like, the BMI Awards for film TV. And then the next day, I sent them an email at 6 in the morning just to check. And they were like, yep, awake. Yeah. And I was like... That is impressive. Well, that's a whole other podcast because I'm obsessed with the book, Why We Sleep, but we can yeah. talk because there's morning people and night people and it's not good or bad. It just, it just is. It is. Um, so quickly, a couple other things. Um, what is Eventide and, and why did you want to um, work there? Oh, Eventide? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. They're a company. Uh, I think they started in, I want to say the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, I should know that. Um, I interned there after coming back to New York. What happened was I did like the... Uh, internship at Hans Zimmer's studio. And then I realized I hadn't gotten an internship for credit at NYU. It's this whole thing, basically. Like, I didn't want to do an internship during the summer for credit because you'd have to pay for mm. the summer class credits. Sure. It just seemed dumb to pay for the ability to intern somewhere. And the money goes to NYU. So just out of principle, I was like, no, I'm not going to yeah. do that. And then my senior year comes and I haven't done an internship during the school year. So I need to get one. Mm. And I got this one at Microsoft that was paid and they even gave me like an Xbox was on the way and like I had a Microsoft Surface laptop they gave me. Apparently it was like really hard to get it and I submitted like the last minute you could um, and got it. And then I just hated my boss there so much Mm. that I I quit in three weeks. My internship supervisor was like, what are you doing? Like a Microsoft internship looks so good for your resume, uh, especially as you're about to graduate. Uh, and you, you have to get an internship by next week. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to get the, the credits in. And I was like, I think I can do that. And then I just emailed everyone I knew. Yeah. Um, and even Tide immediately got back to nice. me and was like, yeah, we want to bring you on. And it was like a paid internship. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, they had this one software called Mangled Verb that I worked on uh, a little bit. I just made some presets for it. And uh, for producers listening, it's just like a reverb going into a distortion um, which is a really interesting effect, mostly used in like the sound design world. It's actually the opposite of what people tell you to do <laughs> in production school and mixing school. Um, but it's a really, really cool and powerful software. Um, and I made some presets for it. And then it was really great, like being in college at the Clive Davis Institute, and, like watching this one Pensado's Place interview where I saw Dave Pensado, one of my favorite mixers, use my preset on like one of his videos. Uh, and that was like the proudest achievement I had at that time. And then apparently Ryan Tedder used that preset on a song for One Republic recently, so that was cool. Um, Not that, yeah, you get any credit outside of that (laughs) for the thing. Um, But I just kind of liked working with like a software company and I thought I might work at like a plugin Mm -hmm. maker or like a guitar pedal manufacturer. Even Time does both those things. They make guitar pedals, like rack mounted uh, studio gear and software. and then, yeah, basically when I got my first, like, composing opportunity, my boss at Eventide said, I think you should focus on that. And if it doesn't work out, come back here and we'll have a job waiting for you. That's and great. I was like, that's great to know. So then, yeah, like a week after graduating from NYU, I just moved to L.A. And then 
yeah, I'm just here, I guess. I love it. Yeah. Um, also, what is Output Inc.? And tell us about your sound design work there. Yeah, Output is another kind of software company. Uh, they make like studio desks too. Mm-hmm. They might even have one up there. I'm not sure. Um, but uh, Output was just making all these like really cool like sound library uh, software things. And at the time, they had this new thing coming out called Arcade. Um, so I made a bunch of like sounds and loops for Arcade and mapped a lot of the things in there for them. Um, so that was a kind of great gig coming out of college because it was part-time. You get, I don't know exactly what the number was. I want to say something like $10 a loop. Um, that's an interesting story actually too because one of the people who worked at Output worked on this software for them called Exhale, uh, which is like a vocal thing. Um, so <laughs> one time that guy's at lunch with my friend and they're just eating it somewhere in LA and they hear... Um, I think it was Mihente, like the, the Beyonce song, the, mm-hmm. the vocal thing is like, da, 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 da. And that's a exhale sound. Like you hit oh. the three keys next to each other. It's like, da, 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 da. And then um, he heard it. He's like, oh my gosh, I sold that to output for, I guess in that case, three loops. So like $30 or $60 or something. Wow. <laughs> and yeah, it's kind of wild that that's like, yeah, he, he had his vocals on a Beyonce song. Amazing. Because <laughs> of that. Um and that is kind of the, the sad side of that, going back to, like, owning your stuff. Because, mm-hmm. like, in that case, he wanted the money, so he sold it to, like, Output. Output doesn't collect royalties on that. Right. But, like, that's more work than a lot of producers do these sure. days. Where, like, some people just make, like, loop packs, and then you still have to mix it or do other things. But, like, yeah, it's just kind of wild that, in that case, like, he ended up working on this thing, but, like, not really. Um, so all to say that, in, like, that kind of case, I think it would be better to own your stuff. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, that vocal probably wouldn't have made it onto the song if it wasn't in an output plugin. So then it's it's just like such a weird thing to think about. And like the um It's Always Sunny in Philly, I was watching that the other day. That whole like I think there's like two or three pieces of music they use for every episode, and it's all from this one music library. It was a German composer who I think sold his album to one of these music libraries for like a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars. And then it's probably made millions of residuals off sure. of um, off of It's Always Sunny. And you can license that song today on your YouTube video if you yeah. wanted to for probably 500 bucks or something. Exactly. Um, so in that case, you gave away a huge percentage. But again, it's like owning 50% or whatever of right. something as opposed to 100% of nothing. Is, That's right. Yeah. It's like, it's bizarre because, yeah, ideally... You, make the most you can and yeah yeah it's just very complicated exactly but hopefully we've streamlined that yeah i don't think any of my output sounds have made it onto any beyonce songs yet yeah (laughs) someday yeah so you also write for sonic scoop yeah what drew you to write about global audio and music production i mean i think we can tell but yeah but still writing you know writing articles is different than i mean i would just read like premiere guitar and guitar world all the time when i was a kid um and yeah, it was, like, really fun. I remember, like, meeting, like, two of the people who worked at Premier Guitar, um, Jason Shadrick and uh, I'm blanking on the other person's name now. But I saw them in New York at some concert or something and just, like, said hi, took a photo with them, and then sent, found their email on the website and they sent this, like, email and they put it into the magazine. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. Um, and then, yeah, years later, I think what happened was I was – teching for the Foo Fighters my freshman year no at deal. one show at Irving Plaza. 
Um, I was friends with one of the tech guys, and then he, um, I asked if he, he wanted to grab coffee because I saw there were Foo Fighter shows in New York. He was like, "How about you come over and help out for the day?" Great, I was like, great, even yeah. better. And then I met David at Sonic Scoop mm-hmm. while in college. He was a guest at one of the classes, and then yeah, I just mentioned that I like wanted to get into writing for like some kind of like magazine or something. And he's like, "Well, we got Sonic Scoop. We'd love to like." asked for some ideas and I sent over like a list of things and then wrote the first one. I think it was like a pro bono pitch or something. And then like mm-hmm. they paid after, but yeah, it was like a great side, you know, income to have and a great way to just like meet people. Cause yeah. they'd be like, Hey, I wrote for this thing, Sonic Scoop and you could reach out to a producer or a mixer and, you mm-hmm. know, schedule an interview. Um, it was a great way to just like expand the network and, you know, and it, it helped some of those people too, who wanted more publicity and press. So, so yeah, it was fun. Um, I'm doing some reviews for them here and there, but I wish I had more free time. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, was well, ago. you know, another great way to, to meet people um, is through your podcast, Composer Talk. So what yeah. um, inspired you to launch that? That one was just during COVID 2020. Yeah. Um, I think that was one of those trends where it was like get a dog or make sourdough <laughs> bagels or something and then start a podcast. Um, yeah, so I, I started a podcast. That was the only COVID uh trope I guess I got into um and I was talking to my friend Ryan who does the music for Rick and Morty and was just saying it would be like interesting to do like a Instagram live interview with him or something to like mm-hmm. help you know just create conversations with home and TV composers during the pandemic when everyone's inside and there's no more composer networking events or anything like that going on and then another friend was like well I want to listen to that but I can't attend at that time I have a zoom meeting uh could you record it? And I was like, it's a pain to record a Instagram yeah. live thing. And then someone else was like, why don't you just make it a podcast? And I was like, cool, that's an interesting idea. So, so I just did that. Um, and I forget how many episodes there are. I think it's over 80 or something. And that's I haven't made one in a while. Um, it used to just be like one every week. And it started with a bunch of composers that I knew, like Ryan was the first one. Um, and I think it was different because it was a film composer talking to other film composers and there's so many of those kinds of things and I think like Hot Ones is really good at that where it's like setting or like changing one thing and putting someone in a slightly uncomfortable position where they don't just repeat the same answers to the mm-hmm. questions because if yeah. I asked anyone here like what like tell me about making your album it's like it's always going to be like some variation of the last thing you said to the other to the last person you talked to right. and it's boring to hear like these things that maybe a PR company kind of created <laughs> in terms of the narrative of this album is interesting because it's about the whatever. So just like being able to like ask whether it's dumb questions or just something to like, you know, get them out of that loop of like, okay, this is this uh, answer for this question. Mm-hmm. And um, at one point I felt like it kind of got there because after the first like the 20, 30 episodes, I feel like all the composer like PR companies were asking if I could take their clients on. Wow. And what I did, even though I was going to reach out to that composer because it was a friend, sure. and I talked to them about composer PR companies in the thing, and they mentioned that they paid $3,000 a month yeah. for their PR company. And I just asked, like, what else did they get you this month besides this interview that I was going to reach out to you about mm-hmm. anyways? And they said nothing. I was like, well, just pay me $3,000. I'll get you on it. You know? <laughs> but then I was thinking, like, that is so messy. Like, So then I stopped, like... I tried to stop taking people on if they were sent by the PR company because I felt bad about Stay that. Stay tuned for episode seven, how to market with or without yeah, sorry, a budget. Is there a PR were we for this thing? Or? No, I, we, ta- you know, again, yeah. not to 
go on too much of a, you know, whatever. But like when I wrote this book, what I had to say about PR firms, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to use the word hate. My publicist friends are going to hate me. Yeah. But they actually really like it because they're like, you're teaching um, artists how to work with us most effectively. Yeah. Because if you know how to do the PR yourself, then the reason you're going for a PR company is for something very specific. Exactly. I think if you're trying to win a Grammy, an Oscar, or a Tony or any of those big awards, some of the big PR companies do really have better means of getting you there than if you were to do it by yourself. Or they can um, build off the relationships. But again, right, we're going to have yes. a big, long episode talking all about that. So, exactly. but, but you just brought it to life. So I appreciate that. Yeah. So yeah, as early on, don't pay that much money for PR. Correct. It's not worth it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so what is Manic Winter Productions? Is that your company? That's my company. Okay, yeah. great. So it's, I mean, I mean, that's basically like your bio that I read at the beginning, but oh. do you want to share anything about, um, your company? No, I mean, it's just me, basically. Just me. <laughs> um, I have some people helping out part-time on some things. Um, but yeah, it's been really fun. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's some movies they got to work on this year that I'm like super excited that are coming out later. Um, one big superhero one coming out later this year that I just helped the composer with. Um, and I think I just realized, like, especially this year, that nothing in music gets done by yourself. Like, it's, mm. there's always like someone giving you some kind of opportunity whether it's playing a show at their venue or like yeah. anything like that, it's like, it's, there are a couple people who are like, you know, like the star of their band or the star of the show. But even then it's always like, there's a, I don't even want to say like a team, but like there are favors or there are like people giving you those opportunities and just trusting you once. So it's really yeah. good to just show up, be well-prepared for those opportunities and, like, I couldn't have known when I was at NYU that Pharrell would be a guest teacher and that he'd have a kid's show that would need music. Yeah. And that a teacher there would recommend me because... And, and that was another thing. I didn't go to the film scoring program. I was in this pop music program. Mm. So when someone's like, hey, do you know anyone who could do music for a film or TV show? It's like, if there's one person there who does film and TV music, then you stand out that much more, right? Um, they probably have had alums who have scored a movie or two, but I was just there and, yeah. like, the first person they could think of. So it's good to separate yourself in those kinds of ways. And I was thinking, like, I don't know how I would describe my... If I decide to do a pop album, like, I don't know how to, like, talk about pop music in a way that would be any at all interesting unless it was about the production side of things or some concept for the album. And talk about that. Be yourself. Yeah. But it's just, like, it's wild that, Mm -hmm. like, people can do that. Yeah. Absolutely. So I believe you've been doing some work with uh, Mark Mothersbaugh from Devo. Um, for those that don't know, tell us who Mark is and what you guys have been up to. Because yeah. I'll just preface this by saying, like, I, I believe he scored, like, the Royal Tenenbaums. Mm-hmm. I remember that. Like, so yeah, you just Lego casually. Movie, yeah. Go, sorry. What did you say? Thor Ragnarok, yep. Marvel. Um, basically all the Taika Waititi TV shows are all done by Mark. Um, and I met him through. So I, I music edited this Apple TV show for him called Hello Tomorrow. Um, And that came about last year because he had a music editor who had an assistant. And they, like, I met this assistant on Clubhouse of all places, (laughs) like on the social media app of of COVID, I guess. Um, And she mentioned that she wanted to get into music editing. And I kind of showed her some things on like a Zoom once. And then she got this gig working um, for Mother's Paws music editor. And then they were working on a New York City based production for, um, it was Tiger King, I think, season two. Mm-hmm. And they needed someone in New York who could help out. So they 
asked if I knew anyone. I said, well, I owe you a favor. So might as well hop in and then met with the team and just said like, look, let, let me hop in here. If I mess it up, like I won't charge you <laughs> just like, um, let's see how it goes. Mm-hmm. I think on all of Tiger King, I never even talked to, to Mark once, but I helped the music editor on that for, I think two or three weeks when it could have taken way longer, but sure. I just really wanted to like do a good job and do it quickly too. So finished that in three weeks with some help from my friend Sheena and then got paid and it was great. And then didn't hear from them for months. And then one day I got an email from Steve Mark's like main TV music editor. And he said, we have this New York city based production coming up. Um, they can't hire me because it's a New York production. So I want to recommend you for it. And I was like, I don't know if I want to do that. And then Steve like talked me into it and it was great. And was working with mother's ball for like 37 weeks and still try to visit him whenever I can in LA. And he's been a great, um, yeah, great person to know. And I'll learn something new about music making from him. And just quickly, can you share a little bit about his studio? Because you've mentioned that oh, yeah. to me a few times. He has a studio called Mutato Musica, which is in West Hollywood. I think it might be one of the most expensive like studios in LA. Um, maybe not the most, but like, yeah, it's probably in the top 10. It's in West Hollywood. It's a really lovely, you know, kind of uh, real estate to have. Um, and yeah, it's just a bunch of different writing rooms there. And Mark has this like really cool studio in the center of it all. And yeah, I think he's been there for a while. It also serves like the Devo rehearsal space. So one time I was there doing some synth programming for something and then just hear whip it starting from downstairs. You I go see down hats going by and then, yeah, you see the hat. No, uh, <laughs> they don't wear the hats. At the I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> but then, uh, yeah, I just like walk downstairs and it's like Devo playing whip it and like doing the whole set list for their next show. Um, and it's just like kind of wild to just like take a lunch break and just hear Devo. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but I haven't worked with Mark in a little bit, but mm-hmm. yeah, I think right now there's a writer's strike going on. So yeah. things are pretty slow in the film and TV world. So I'm pretty happy about it. It's like a nice little, uh, well, you're not happy that they're, well, I hear what you're saying for you. I'm happy you that get a striking. Yeah. It's hard for the newer writers getting in, especially the ones who are getting momentum. Cause now it's like, I mean, they can't work and they don't have the residuals that like a more right. established, you know, uh, NBC writer might have. Yeah. Um, so all the striking, it, it could go on for months. Like, I'm yeah. thinking it will be nine months. Wow. And I don't really have much basis except for how long the last one was. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a lot of work. And I think it's already been like $2 billion worth of film and TV work just like wow. evaporated by the strike. But it's also very necessary. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think composers really need to unionize too, because there is no union for film and TV composers or songwriters or producers at all. And it's kind of insane that that would be the way of things. Um, I've been doing more and more research about it, but there is some legal reason why we can't, but it doesn't seem too Mm. valid in 2023. Like, yeah, it's very bizarre. Well, you should start one. Yeah, that'd be fun. (laughs) When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. How's your debut solo album coming along? It's going great. Yeah. So I have this album I'm working on that should come out, I think, 
uh, let's say optimistically in the next couple months. It's 150 tracks and it's <laughs> kind of, I mean, I don't think anyone's ever tried to do something like this because it might end up just being terrible as an idea. But the, the concept for this album was it was going to be an app and each of these songs is 30 seconds. Any of them can go into any other song. And the idea is that you'd play it in shuffle mode and turn shuffle mode into a part of the, the art, right? So you can go from any track to any other track. And every time you press play on the album, it's a completely different musical experience um, with the intent of helping people fall asleep. And um, I actually need to ask you about one of the questions for it, because the thing is, each song being 30 seconds, that's exactly mm -hmm. the amount of length before it counts as a monetizable stream from right. Spotify. But I don't know if it's exactly 31 seconds, if it's past 30 seconds, or if yeah. it's 30.2 seconds. Right. And I can't get an answer from Spotify about this. Interesting. And I don't want to mess it up and make it 29 seconds and then have totally. the whole album not be monetizable. Wow. But... Um, you don't happen to know that number. I don't. Do you? I mean, I would maybe just make a 31 just in case if you I can. I know, but then, like, what if you're missing out in that one second? I know. Extra, just stupidity. Exactly. Like, or 32 a, just to be safe. White like, noise. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a really complicated task because right. I realized, like, just mixing the album, like, I have to be very careful with reverb because if you have reverb on a song and then it goes to the next song and there's no reverb at the start, then it just completely takes you out of the world. And with an album that, is supposed to help you fall asleep. You can't have anything that like takes you out of the world. Right. It's supposed to feel like the equivalent of like having one of those like lo-fi ambient playlists on, mm -hmm. but just have that extra element of it being this thing that, that changes every time you listen to it. Um, but also can't change so much that you're like, whoa, this is this song's too big. The last one was too small in terms of size and scope and production style and all that. So it's a really weird challenge and I got to 130 tracks mm -hmm. listened to it on loop for three days and then deleted 32 tracks because they just took you out of the world yeah and um that's something I, I would never have done 10 years ago but I think just from being a film and tv composer you realize like that is the mission and if you're not mm -hmm. accomplishing that story and that kind of feeling then it has to go even if it's a track that you like yeah and hopefully that can use that for something else in the future but I think it's like really important to to think about those kinds of arcs, whether it's story or like what the intention is of like, if I'm going to put this song out, like what do I want yeah. to get out of the listener? Because there's so much noise these days and mm -hmm. like it's so easy to make music with splice loops and app, apple loops and all that. That sounds pretty decent, but you really want something to say, I think, with your music now more than ever, especially with the whole AI music mm -hmm. trend right now. It's like, Yeah. It's pretty frightening. <laughs> Absolutely. So last question from me. Um, tell us about the Composers Diversity Collective and, you know, why that's so important. Yeah, that was a group started, I think, in 2018 by Michael Abels, the composer of Get Out and Us. And uh, I'm not on the board or anything, but I've been a member, uh, I think, since 2019 or 2020. Uh, my friend Nathan Matthew David told me about it. And it's been really amazing because I think... Um, I mean, more than that group, too. Like, there's another one called the Alliance for Women Film Composers. Right. Apparently, like, of the top 100 grossing films last year, I think 2% were scored by women. Mm -hmm. So there's a huge issue of, like, a lack of diversity in the film and TV scoring world. Um, I think recently, like, there's a new Transformers movie coming out scored by one of the board members of the 
Composers Diversity Collective, also called CDC, which was not intelligence uh, naming during COVID. <laughs> um, and yeah, like in West Hollywood, it was Transformers and then this movie called Strays that was scored by Dara Taylor. Um, and it, it was really wild to see that combo of these two movie posters, which are going to be big, I think. It's a Transformers movie and a Will Ferrell movie. Um, and yeah, even two, three years ago, you wouldn't see two big billboards next to each other scored by like, yeah, yeah, more, more diverse voices, I guess. Exactly. And I hope that, that that those numbers can change. I think it definitely has in like the streaming film TV world. Um, but obviously if like the number is like 2% or, yeah. or less, I think for women composing like the top hundred grossing films in Hollywood, mm-hmm. that's a bit of an issue. So um so yeah, with the Composer Diversity Collective, um, we're trying to do more events and things to increase awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the first thing of like, that there are composers of yeah. different uh, backgrounds and then getting them employed and getting them gigs and also giving like educational resources, whether it's networking and just being able to talk to other composers who are working, or I think they might even have like video lessons and things like that. If not, there's like a Facebook group and some other, you know, educational resources. And and it's really about the network of getting to talk to other people from underrepresented backgrounds and then being able to talk to them. And Jonique Pontop, who just scored Transformers, I'm sure if you joined and you sent him a message, um, you know, don't take advantage of the fact that that's a possibility. But like, but if you ask like about some tech question about how to make a cue sound like something in Transformers, I'm sure he'd want to help you out. Yeah. Um, so it's really like a lovely environment. And I think in the music world, it can get pretty lonely. Like if you're producing or just songwriting, sometimes you are just by yourself. Um, or at least as a film and TV composer, you're just by yourself in front of your DAW for hours. Um, so being able to have uh, resources and, and networks like that is just super essential. Yeah. Um, yeah, it would be great if there was more stuff like that in the pop world too. But yeah. I think there's other events going on this month because of Make Music New York or... Yeah. New York Music Month. New York Music Month. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right. Awesome. Well, anything else you want to add? And we'll open it up to Q&A. And no, I'm just curious to hear from, go. from everyone here and cool. see what the questions might be. Great. Any questions, you can come up to the mic over here. Introduce yourself. Yeah. yeah. Hello. How's it going? I'm oh, great. Cool. Thank you for speaking. You have such an impressive career already. And uh, it's awesome to see you in like so many different things. I guess that's my first question is, is, um, would you think, would you call yourself more of a specialist or a generalist as far as like musical skills? And what do you think has like, is, is more of like a, a, a productive way to think about it, to like have success in where you've been? Yeah. I was actually instructed by a, a manager recently that I should probably focus on like one thing. Cause it's pro- it's hard to do multiple things and like not have people think that you you're just like decent at all of them. Like I was telling some musician recently, like if you went to like an event, like or you're at a bar and someone's like, what do you do? And you say you're a guitar player, you're a vocalist, you're a producer, you're a mixer. But immediately like the other person would just think that you don't really know much about any of them. But at the same time, that's like most artists right now have to do all those things and they have to be a marketer and they have to be a promoter. And it's wild, like how much that uh, a music maker in 2023 has to do. Um, so that said, I think I've realized that it's important to specialize in one thing, do that thing, and then you can go on to the next thing if you want, but it's really important to like actually get stuff done as opposed to 
if you spread your interests too wide, I think, um, and you, you do the generalist kind of thing, it can be easy to like start making one song and start, you know, uh, preparing for a live show at somewhere else and then none of it actually coming to life. Um, so like, if you ask me what I do right now, I'd say that I'm focusing on this album and film composing. And those are two things that I think are pretty accomplishable. Um, there's just one movie I'm scoring right now and then there's just the album. So that's decent. Um, but next week I might say, Hey, I'm doing composer talk again, or I might say I'm going back into making YouTube videos of guitar pedals or something. (laughs) Um, so I like to set my goals for like a week and start on Sunday or Monday and just do that thing very intently for the week. If something else comes up that pays more, maybe pivot for a sec, maybe not. And just say like, no, I decided this week that this is what I'm going to do. Reply or like, let me know next Monday if uh, this sync opportunity thing still exists. And I think once you start like setting your intentions like that, it can be really useful. I'd say to actually do it for longer than a week, probably set your intentions for like five months or six months. Mm -hmm. And then just see like where things go. Because if you set your intentions in a week that I want to get a song on Love is Blind, the new season, it's not going to happen for most people because that's not enough time. That's like a one year or two year goal, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but then if you're like very specific about you wanting to do that, I think it's very, very possible for that to happen. Yeah. Love it. All right. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, sure. Hey there. Hi, uh, good evening. Um, I have a particular question that I would like for you to answer. Um, what is your advice for those who uh, whose uh, passion in their careers begin to begin to wane as they as because of the circumstances that they're under, like uh, they're unsatisfied with the position they're they're in. There is no other. Um, <clears throat> there is no other. Um, position out there that they will be much uh, more satisfied in or they're not getting getting enough uh, credit for the work or or even getting enough uh, you know a decent enough uh, money to live yeah that's I think the first thing is just to make sure that like, you could feel happy outside of like work and everything else uh, and it's hard when you have like a lot of environmental, just like, you know, circumstances kind of things hitting you. Um, I think like the first things I focus on are just sleep, hydration, just drinking enough water. And then I still just feel like a lot of dread after a day or two, then um, I think changing environment is really like the next thing you can do, whether it's moving, it could, you don't need to leave the state, but like leaving your current situation of like just your house and like, if you're working from home, work from the park or from a cafe or something for a week Mm -hmm. um and seeing if that helps things and if that doesn't fix everything because it might not then you have to look at other places in your life and do some internal searching um i don't i don't know what the situation is here but i think like when i felt like sick of doing music um typically time fixes a lot of things but when it doesn't i think trying to go back to like what inspired me to get into music in the first place is pretty useful. I still have my iPod touch from when I was a kid and I just like never touched that playlist and just 
it's, it's kind of dumb. I could probably make the same playlist on Spotify or on Apple Music now, but I just like going to that iPod and putting in my old headphones and just like listening to all that music, all those Aerosmith albums, Ozzy Osbourne and uh, um, Coldplay, whatever else was on there at that time. And it just brings me back into like a nice, safe place. Um, so that's one of my pieces of advice. I'm sure if I played Guitar Hero 3, it would be the same kind of thing. Um, and I think it's important to have other hobbies and interests outside mm-hmm. of music as well. There's so many people who, um, like, I mean, I had it once where there was an artist at RCA Records that I was helping with some production stuff and like tracking their vocals. And they were 16, they're in high school. And after school, their life was getting put into an Uber and going to the studio and mm-hmm. recording a bunch of songs and writing a bunch of stuff. And at some point you listen to it and you're just like, all you're talking about is being in an Uber, being driven to a studio and like, you don't have yeah. any life experience to write about because you're just on repeat and doing the same thing over and over again. And you're basically writing the same song mm-hmm. every single day. So you need to live life and do things outside of entertainment and outside of music to be able to emotionally connect with someone with your music. And otherwise you're just writing music for other producers and songwriters where that's all that they might know. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that was helpful at all. Um, I mean, I think that's great advice. And I mentioned this in another episode, like it's, we're entrepreneurs, whether you're an artist or whatever you're doing. And it's so easy to get caught in the weeds and just be like, what am I doing? You know, but sometimes you just have to take a break, like Matt said, and actually look back and be like, oh my gosh, I actually came you know, this far. And, and it's easier said than done because social media platforms are programmed to do this, but try, we'll definitely take a break from social and try not to get caught up in the FOMO, right? The fear of missing out. Like we're going to talk about that in episode seven, focusing on like your own green grass instead of the grass is only green around the other side. And if you really can't handle the FOMO, reach out to them. You know, like get coffee, set up a Zoom. Maybe they have FOMO about what you have going on and and the great like instrumental music you're making. You know, we all go through this. So that's part of why we're doing this in person. So you guys can come together as a community. And I believe this, I believe you're looking for a lyricist also. So if there's any lyricists out here, you guys can connect. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. Anyone else? Cool. Thank you very much for answering my question. Our pleasure. Hey there. Thanks for everything, by the way. Um, I'm just wondering if you could elaborate on um, what you had spoken about, like the dangers of uh, signing too many non-exclusive labels yeah. with music libraries or agencies, because it would seem like, you know, the more kind of the more you're on these libraries, the more briefs you're going to see, the more opportunities you're going to have. So I'm just wondering how do those become competitive? Or I mean, a lot of them get the same pitches for exactly. one. So yeah, and the ones that aren't like. I think Terrorbird has reached out to for, or at one point was reached out to for a specific kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So Mophonics is another great example. So like Foster the People came out of that. So I'm sure anyone looking for anything that sounds like Foster the People would immediately go to the place that had Foster, right? right. So it's good to go to a roster that has stuff like what you think you sound like, because the chances are they might want a cheaper version of that thing. But then the other flip side of it is maybe go to the roster that doesn't have anything that sounds like you so you can be the one unique thing. Kind of like what I said about the film scoring thing at the pop program. It's like if you can be like the one uh, 
rocks or I don't know, the one rapper who has like a choir on their stuff and like they don't have that in their roster. So then they just send that because you're the only person that does that thing. Huge, right? Or same if it's like a music library that doesn't have elevator music. And then all of a sudden you give them an album called Elevator Music 2. And then every time someone's like, hey, we need music for this elevator scene, I have just the thing for you. That's so specific that you're not going to get synced 99.99% of the time. But then when someone needs it, you're the first thing that comes up in their brain, right? Um, So, and even like, if your goal is to get syncs, because that's different than being an artist and like trying to make the best possible music, unfortunately. Maybe like put out an album called like Cheaper Radiohead. And it's just like songs that sound like Radiohead, but you could license it today. That's not a terrible idea, I think. Totally. And I know a composer who's like most synced piece of music is called Dark Ambient Drone 2. Because you know, like if you're looking for a drone and you're an editor, you don't know anything music. You don't know like a minor key or a major key or what artists do things. You could just look up drone and that would pop up because, and sorry, it was ambient dark drone because A comes up first. Another awesome tip, start your things with an underscore. Don't do that because it would pop it at the top or a number or A. (laughs) Yeah, A great place or something. It's like that will come up that much sooner than the person whose track starts with a F. Yeah. Yeah. And and cheap Radiohead, um, that's that's called a replacement. Yeah. So if someone's looking, oh, we we're looking for a Led Zeppelin replacement because we, we don't have a budget for that. But I I can't stress enough, they all have the same briefs. And maybe a parallel example is like, and we'll talk about this more in episode seven, like, should I go with this publicist or that publicist or this agent or that agent? They all know the same people. You know, so like you just need to find one that you connect with, that you can continue to stay in touch with. Yeah, like maybe once in a while, some of them get different briefs, but like you're falling into the same thing I did when I was younger. Like, oh, the more the merrier, right? But it's it's going to cause a train wreck. So it's better to develop one or two really great relationships instead of just like trying to work with everyone because it's, it's such a small community. Yeah, the retitling thing in particular is like so like badly looked upon that like, if a music supervisor sees that, they might even just like email everyone be like, hey, don't use this artist's thing because they'll see it in three different locations. Yeah. So just be very careful about that. Like, make sure your music's used in one place. Yeah. And, yeah. and work those people. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate it. For sure. Cool. One more. How's it going, Matt? Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Nice to meet everyone. My name is Joshua Damata, and I'm a marketer and partnerships manager by day, and a artist, producer, uh, and voiceover artist on my own time as well. So uh, with that, I was very curious to ask you like a more broader question on what advice, resources, and organization a newer composer can look into to start tapping into the composer community, especially if they're looking to one day write for music and or for TV and film. For TV and film. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the great thing in terms of like educational resources is YouTube is just covered with like any kind of topic about um, composing. Like there's a woman named Anne Catherine Duren who's an amazing composer. She has this really comprehensive uh, YouTube channel about like all the steps of like the actual film scoring stuff. I'd say like some extent, something like the masterclass Hans Zimmer class, uh, which I know has kind of been memed at this point because of the trailer. Um, That one, you won't actually learn how to do any of like the technical film scoring stuff, but he covers a lot of like the basics 
honestly, it's not worth the money. You could probably just read a couple interviews about Hans talking about the concept of film scoring and get the same kind of thing out of it. But it is important to start with that kind of fundamental, even before the tech stuff and all that, of just like, what is the purpose of music for the scene? And start by just watching your favorite movies and noting every time you hear music and saying, what is this piece? Why is this here? Like, could the movie work without this piece of music here? Is it fixing? Is, is it a comedy movie? Is this piece of music adding some like funny things to the background of the scene because the joke isn't landing unless there's music there to say this is a funny scene, right? Same with like a horror movie. Mm -hmm. Would this scene actually be scary without music? Um, And then like just start to notice those things first. Um, In terms of the composer community, there is the uh, Society of Composers and Lyricists, but I'd highly recommend like for for women, um, the Alliance for Film Composers and then the Composers Diversity Collective is I think an amazing group. Um, outside of that, I mean, there are like Facebook groups and things like that, but I think it, it's helpful again with composers, just cause we are in front of our computer for so long to find groups that are the meet up in person. So I'd say the SEL society of composers, lyricists does a lot of in-person events. Um, I'm talking with the composers diversity collective, uh, people about making sure that we can do some more events, both in New York and LA. Um, and they do a fairly great job about like in-person events in LA. Um, I'm trying to think of other resources that'd be useful. I think ASCAP might host some like composer workshops and things. They do. And in terms of like learning more stuff, there is a BMI NYU workshop that they do, I think every year. Um, And there are film scoring programs like the NYU one that I didn't go to is really good. And a lot of people who come out of that program are just really talented. Um, And a lot of them also end up getting gigs working with like bigger composers like I think the composer Junkie XL, who did like the Mad Max movie and both of the recent Sonic the Hedgehogs, he has like four NYU grads working for him right now. So, um, so yeah, that kind of like network of just being in class with people who have the same interests is useful. But in terms of actually getting the scoring work, most of the time it doesn't come from a composer. Like I was lucky enough that uh, the first composer I ever assisted, this guy Craig Wedrin, um, he had me co-compose the most the two most recent Reno 911 films with him. Um, and I realized that that's not like, that's not like a given or, you know, something that should have been expected on my part. I was like very fortunate that that happened. But when someone hires you, they hire you to just do a thing. And in that case, I was just Craig's assistant. So I just had to assist him in any way possible. Um, and that those two movies came up and I was glad to co-compose them with him. Um, but most of the time it's a filmmaker that will give you the opportunity to score their film. So I think it's useful to go to the film meetups in Brooklyn and Manhattan Mm -hmm. and talk to filmmakers. Um, And even if they have a composer they work with, just talk to them and become friends with filmmakers and people making things, whether it's editors, cinematographers. And then when a director they know is like, I'm making a film, I need a composer, they'll say, I know just the person. Because filmmakers talk to filmmakers, composers generally talk to composers, you know? Um, I'm sure, like, pop producers are followed mostly by other pop producers on Instagram, right? So that's a great way in. Mm-hmm. Find some short filmmaker that you like in New York. Um, even if they're not there at the screening, just see who they follow on Instagram and just, like, look around, like, try to get familiar with the names. And then you might see some people at some events in New York or in LA or wherever. And then, um, and you can even cold email or cold Instagram 
Dia or whatever it is called these days. Um, and I think that's a great way to end. And especially the editors, because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people get this part wrong because title music supervisor sounds like they are supervising a thing, which some of them are. But a lot of them, like, what happens is a director or an editor places a song into the cut of a film. And then the music supervisor's job is to either clear that song or find a cheaper alternative mm-hmm. most of the time. Yeah. Reality TV, kind of a different uh, conversation. But... I don't know. It's almost more like suggesting in a lot of cases, in my opinion. Um, not to, I, there are a lot of amazing music supervisors who do great work. But with that said, if you talk to an editor and they like your music and they say, hey, send me like a Dropbox link of a bunch of your songs and they place it in the cut of whatever TV show they're working on, director might hate it. Great. We'll replace it. We'll get a cheaper alternative or we'll find a different song. But if they like it, it's, it's in the show now. It's like, it's way harder to take it out, right? Because the editor already started with it in there. Um, And a lot of editors like to cut to music, meaning they don't want to just chop scenes and move, you know, frames here and there without having some kind of grid, uh, whether it's a musical grid, right? So like cutting it so that I'm going to chop this reaction on this downbeat of some music that's not composed for the the project at all. It's just like Mm -hmm. some library track or some track of my friend. So that's a great way in too, is like if you become friends with editors and they have your music, then you have that much of a better chance of getting getting in. And sometimes it happens where an editor tempts your music, meaning that they put your music into a cut of the movie. Then the discussion comes up of like, which composer do we go with? And if they like the temp music, the music that's already in there, they might just say, let's just hire this person because we already like what's going on. So that's a great situation. And that beats the music supervisor and it beats the the agents ever getting an email about like, um, hey, we have this movie, it's a comedy, like, do you have any composers we could talk to? Mm-hmm. So um, that'd be my advice. Meet the filmmakers, whether it's yeah. the directors, editors, and whoever else, and, um, to actually get work. But then no other composers too, because it is really useful to have a support group and people you can ask questions and things about. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll just add really quick, um, maybe reach out to student filmmakers yes. um, too, because they need music. And then again, then you have that example, like, hey, I can write for picture because that's really important. I've worked with big like rock pop songwriters that want to score and then get told like, oh, well, you're a rock pop per- person. Right. So it's great to just have that example already. Okay, well, thank you both. Yeah. Oh. I was just going to say that a lot of times that that's the cool factor that gets you the gig as a composer over someone who is just a composer. Right. Danny Elfman was from Oingo Boingo. Mark Mothersbaugh mm-hmm. is from Devo. And I see a little Devo thing over nice. there. Or SD Heim from Heim is scoring a lot mm-hmm. of stuff now. And I'm sure being in Heim and having that kind of cool factor there doesn't hurt. Sure. Um, Craig Wedron worked, or he uh, was the front man of Shudder to Think, mm-hmm. uh, a band in the 90s. Um, so, yeah. It's like, whatever in it is, you know, yeah. it's great, but um, but at the end of the day with a lot of them too, it's about knowing the filmmaker. So mm-hmm. yeah. So start there as opposed to yeah. start with the music people, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Sense. Yeah. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Well, Matt, thank you so much for your time today and your knowledge. Oh, yeah. You. Let's give it up for Matt. I love it. So join us tomorrow at 4 PM Eastern in real life. If the air quality isn't too terrible. Um, here at Tower Labs in Brooklyn, uh, or via live stream if the air quality is terrible. 
um, on our YouTube as we discuss setting up your release and distribution plan with Kristen Jewell, Senior Analyst with Water and Music. Thanks so much to podcast manager Michael Zimmerlich, engineer Nathan Kane, today's guest, Matthew Wong, for composing the show's music, Danny, David, and Jake at Tower Records, Downtown, The Ally Coalition, Liquid Death, Hal Leonard, and of course, the Mayor's Office of Media and Entertainment's New York Music Month for making this all happen. We will see you tomorrow.